obviously not going to be uh, linear in any sort of fa fashion. It'll be chopped and screwed to make it what it is. But we, we, we're coming off our two and a half hour uh, Le Mans <laughs> of Marxism. Yeah. And we're, we're, we're going into what, by the sounds of it, will probably be a, a significantly shorter, but not, not less meaty. Uh, batch of chapters. Uh, spoiler. Oh, a lot meatier. Oh, there's a lot of meat going on here. Uh, there's a lot of meat. Uh, spoilers. Chapter nine. You're not gonna enjoy that much, I don't think. Uh, there's a lot of math if you read it. Um, if you're like me, your eyes started glazing over a little bit and went, "God damn it, why do you keep doing this, man?" And then he gives you chapter ten, which is like really, really good. It's, it's Marx's thing. Like he won't punish you for too long without giving you some of the good, good vitriol. So. So Nathan has a different opinion than me on uh, Senior's Last Hour, apparently. So. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> uh, that being said, let's launch on into it. So chap, so we just got done. Chapter eight was was overview was constant capital, correct? We were we were going over. Yes. So we were talking about constant capital and variable capital. And constant mm -hmm. capital is the stuff because it doesn't add value. Correct. You have a machine; it wears down over time. However much it wore down, that chunk of the value is going into the new product. And again. You're not seeing value directly. Prices are always a guess at value. So that value is really getting transferred, but you're not going, oh, one-sixth of my machine has been drained by making these gloves, so one-sixth of its value is in these gloves. You know, which makes it kind of seem a little Although, weird, don't get it twisted, guys. Elon Musk is working on some sort of app equation <laughs> that will tell you exactly how much of his machine went into making your Tesla, and he will find a way to charge you for it. Yeah, and then, then he'll stare at his workers and say $7 an hour really is too goddamn much. And make it super woke. Oh, my God. Speaking of to complete derailment, did you see that Wall Street Journal article like two days ago? I don't I don't know which one. I'm okay. afraid to ask. The fun, one, the fun one that painted Elon Musk as like the champion of the workers sleeping under his desk oh, and sleeping on the factory floor God, side by dude. side. Oh, it's great! Oh, don't do this it's to my brain. fantastic! Oh, oh no. he's, he's suffering with them, David. He's Bro. suffering with them. God he's just us. like one of them, sleeping under his desk with his pillow with no pillowcase, like a sweet baby Jesus and the ghost of Nelson Mandela. Oh. Help me burn Elon Musk to the ground. I don't want to hear this. Oh, it was <laughs> it was the most. I'm, I literally was like, oh. oh my! Elon couldn't have wrote a more. That's gushing profile. It was to hear the overview of it. Was want to know the details. bad. They were going to make me pay to read the rest of it, and I said no, sir. Um, <laughs> oh, so God. Wall Street Journal. I'm just going to assume the rest of it was as garbage as the little tidbit that you gave me. <laughs> oh God. So that okay. being said, yeah, okay. the stuff goes in, the stuff comes out. They factor yeah. that into the equation. You're paying for it. And there's obviously materials you burn up, and you know that value is going in the, the correct. Gloves. Marx just said, hey, all of that goes in there, yep. and the only thing that's changing is the variable capital, and the reason. That that's kind of important in today's world, and we're going to get into that a little bit here, is we're going to start talking about machines just a touch in Chapter 9. That's going to come back up later. And so, you know, one of the things, Marx covers all of the bases. I mean, we kind of breeze through it. You know, we just declared that value comes from labor. Marx shows you exactly how that happens painfully, excruciatingly slow in Chapter 1. But that matters, right? It does. And... And then we ticked through it for a few chapters. So, you know, we're just going to basically assert that, hey, you know, I mean, it really does come to the machine. But he does go into why a machine, and, and we'll get way into that in 10, and especially 15 and even 25, um, into why a machine that may make workers more efficient isn't actually adding value. Um, and you've got to realize, again, it, it's important to con the context. The machines that Marx could have possibly been talking about are, in you know, industrial era factory machines, looms and grinders and, and, oh. and the big 
Sure, but automation is the same idea. It's exactly. Just so much further down the line. Exactly. But that's the thing. It's the same concepts are going to, you know, we, we'll, we'll, we're going to kind of try and bring that forward of, hey, you may think this is going to be outdated because, hey, we have this new sweet technology. And the great thing about going through every single detail in the history of times like Marx did is, nope, nope, he thought of that. He thought of that 200 years ago because he's a goddamn Svengali. <laughs> All right, so we're gonna start. It's we're gonna start with uh, the degree of exploitation of labor power. Now, degree of exploitation <laughs> sounds super juicy, doesn't sounds it? Sounds super juicy. Yeah. Uh, it also sounds like, oh yeah, this is just more of his math crap. This is gonna be vital for the rest of the book, and that's kind of why, even though this really does fit in section three, and we could have chunked it off the chapter eight. Aside from that episode being long enough, this is really <laughs> the foundation. So if we're gonna launch the the good meaty insides of Das Kapital. We're going to launch it with this. We're going to throw that seasoning in our mouth yes. and then we're just going to bite that fucking steak. So, <laughs> Is that how you eat steak? No. For the love of God, man! It is It is not, but that's how you're going to you do it. You lick the salt, you take the shot, you have the lime. That's the order <laughs> here. You know, what? God, I just imagine you chugging salt and pepper and then shoving steak in behind it. I obviously season before grilling because uh, that I, makes it do it. But, hey, oh, you know, even God. if I did that, that would be better ste- steak eating than Trump that is absolutely true. That's absolutely factual. So we're going to go into the degree of exploitation of labor power. And now he's going to say the capital, and remember capital is means of production, um, is money, which essentially money isn't means of production. It's means of exchange. And if anyone tells you money is means of production, not means of exchange, that means they think that the workers can just seize the banks and everything will magically work. And obviously that's nonsense. No. But you can think of them together with the means of production because they can be exchanged for it. And so you're going to think of capital instead of means of production. Um, and those two components, and this is exactly what it says, the capital yep. C is made up of two components. One, the sum of money laid out upon the means of production, and the other, the sum of money expended upon the labor power. So this is all the means of production and the money packed into it, and all the money that we're buying the labor power into it, Okay. Um, and, and when you combine those two together, out the other side comes your fun thing that you made. Yes. And he actually does this. It's confusing because we're calling capital and then the letter C. But it's going to be a capital C uh-huh. versus a lowercase c that represents the portion that comes from the constant capital. If you have seen this in equation form. Yes. And if, you, if, if you're trying to like play along with the math, don't. Just pull it. It's, yeah. it there's a PDF of this. But this book is in the public domain, people. It's not hard to get a hold of. Uh, and then he's saying V is the variable capital, the, the, the labor. Uh, so he's saying then, you know, capital C equals lowercase c plus V. To put that into perspective in a way that you can hear over a microphone, that means that all of the capital of the capitalist is made up of constant capital and variable capital. Pretty simple concept, okay? And the capitalist obviously wants to grow his capital. So this talks about, you know, 500 pounds and... Then they, you know, have 90 pounds variable capital, and then they get 90 pounds of surplus value from the production. The, the labor can add that surplus value. So now you have 590 pounds. So you've gone from C, the capital, to capital prime. Okay. Woo! Yeah. And then he, he talks about, uh, let's see, what did he call the tautology? He says, oh, yeah, yeah, the difference between surplus value, or I'm sorry. Since the value of the constituent elements of the product is equal to the value advance of the capital, it is tautology to say that the excess value of the product over the value of its constituent elements is equal to the expansion of capital. So he's saying that tautology for something, we've used that term before, Marx uses it a lot. Yeah. Uh, It basically means you're stating something that obviously means something else. To be glib, to act like you're making a point, and... 
usually it means to try to steer people the wrong direction, but it doesn't have to. It's just no. being glib. It can be being banal, whatever it is. That's a tautology. And it's all that's that is a a, a one conceptual in in what. Since Marx is dealing with a lot of mathematical concepts here, tautologies, you know, in mathematics and stuff like that are are basically just meaningless sentences. If I say x is equal to x, that is a tautology in math. It, it's worthless. It does me no good. Uh, but it's there. Two plus, you know, or, or four equals four is a tautology. Yeah. You would do nothing with it. It would be. It, it's something that's so on its face is so obvious that you go there. And so when he can condense the entire system of profit making to a tautology mm-hmm. that's kind of interesting that is worth doing yeah that, that kind of says that maybe you're going in the right direction here uh-huh. as long as you're not wasting time on the tautology so he says okay let's dig in let's not leave it at tautology let's see what the insights are okay so he's talking about machinery and he says you know if you have a, a constant capital 410 pounds uh, which is 312 pounds of raw material, 44 pounds of other materials, whatever, yeah. it's all 410, and uh, 54 of machinery worn away. Okay, so your machinery drops its value. Mm-hmm. Elon all figured right. out how much of his robot made your car. Yeah. Now you suppose the total value is 1,054 pounds of, of uh, constant capital. So it's a bigger amount of constant capital. So you're going to wind up with more value at the end. But then he's saying, you know, if you're starting with that, then your total, you're starting, instead of starting with 500 pounds and taking it 590, you're starting with 1,500 pounds and you're going to 1,590. And again, he takes this a little more detail. It would be boring and, and kind of weird to, to read that out totally. Yes. Thing. But he's saying you're, you're still getting 90 pounds. Yes. Okay, that's still your, your surplus value. And that's the, the whole goal here is to show, look, you can throw in as many different wacky, oh, if you have 40, 45 machines pumping it. No. At the end of the day, you're, you're going to have your surplus value. You're going to have your constant capital. You're going to have your variable capital. That's it. If the constant capital is split up into 18 different component parts, that's fine. But it's still the same amount of constant capital, and you still have your same surplus value yeah, at the end. Remember, he's I mean, doing this with basic algebra, right? If you, if you change one variable on one side of an equal sign and everything else stays constant then the other variable on the other side of the equal sign is going to change the same amount. Cool. You know, I mean, if you have 20 plus 5 equals 25, and then you leave the plus 5, can't touch that, and you say, okay, I have 21 plus 5, well, it's just going to be 26. Six. They're both just going to add 1. That's how math works. You know, no one needs to be told that. <laughs> if you did, congratulations! You've now learned how math works from a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Tell your teachers. Uh, but, you know, I mean, Marx is going by it. He's saying, hey, you know, I mean, this is simple math. You can't mess this up. And he even got down to if you didn't have any constant capital, if you just had variable capital. Okay, so if you had C equals 0 plus V or V, C prime would just be V plus the surplus value. Okay, so C prime minus C, and again, this is big C's. C prime minus C is always going to be S. It's always going to be surplus value. It's going to be how much value the capital adds. So we can handle this in a very simple equation. Okay, And he says it seems a little strange. Uh, he actually uses the words quite strange. I think it's, At first sight, it appears strange proceeding to equate the constant capital to zero. Yet is what we do every day. For example, we wish to calculate the amount of England's profits from the cotton industry. We first of all deduct the sums paid for cotton to the United States, India, Egypt, and other countries. In other words, the value of the capital that merely appears in the product is put to zero. Yep. Okay, we're getting rid of equals. We're we're uh, simplifying, is what they call it in math. You're just getting rid of stuff that that equals the same thing. Yep. Okay. Um, and then he goes on to that we're gonna do we're gonna look at the ratio of surplus value, and we're just gonna simplify. Okay. 
Um, and then he says, in order that variable capital may perform its function, constant capital must be advanced in the proper proportion, a proportion given by the special technical conditions of each labor process. The circumstance, however, that retorts and other vessels are necessary to a chemical process does not compel the chemist to notice that there's a result in his analysis. Okay, so he's saying that, you know, I mean, a chemist would take these experiments and he's going to try to isolate things, but that doesn't mean he's going to instantly know all the inner linings of all his processes. He's knowing what he isolated. I, it's, you know, I mean, again, it's how you do a science experiment. Yeah. So he says, if we look at the means of production and their relation to the creation of value and the variation of the quantity of value apart from anything else, they appear simply as the material in which the labor power, the value created, incorporates itself. Neither the nature nor the value of this material is of any importance. So it doesn't matter where the labor power comes from, you know, what skill they, they have, who they are. I, again, you know, I mean, that can matter in other senses, but he's talking just about the um, degree of exploitation. It, that, that doesn't have any uh, matter in, at all. And I don't feel like it's too spoiler here, but just in case you're getting lost in the weeds, uh, the whole this, this matters in the sense that we have to isolate where profit comes from in this system. How yeah. do you create surplus value? How does a capitalist make... This is kind of back to... We had a little bit of a diversion last time on 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 talking about... But now we're kind of back to this essential point of how the hell does this work? How What what thing is he using to make this money, make more money, and suddenly get get rich, you know, make his infinite money that the, the capitalist yeah. seems to want? And, and this, is, this is a whole bunch of him going through, look, Here's the 18 different ways that it's not his machine or it's not his tool or it's not his whatever. We're trying to drill down to what is the one thing that is different that he has to be able to exploit, for lack of a better word. Yeah, and when I'm saying, like, you know, the skill and stuff doesn't matter, it doesn't matter for finding out the profit margin. You know, no. if someone's more skilled, so you have to pay them 60 grand for a job instead of 30 grand, but then you're making 69 grand for it instead of 39 grand for it, the thing that's going to matter is that nine, nine grand that's remaining. Yeah. Okay, so. Um, Let's see. In our example, the ratio is, oh, he did an example with 90 over 90. He said, you know, if you have 180 pounds total and that's produced off 90 pounds of variable capital, then you're looking at 90 over 90 is S over V. And so that's your degree of surplus value uh, over variable capital. It's the degree of exploitation, or no, that's the rate of surplus value, not the degree of exploitation. I'm sorry. Yep. Nope. The rate of surplus value. I'm getting my equation. He's got I know, and this is, the, and, and again, I think this is, this is, and you can see it. Again, this is why this chapter is dangerous. This is why I think having two people kind of going through it at the same time is, is good. Because, again, it, it's S over, when you got the S over V, that is your your rate. What, what did we just say? What? S over V Quant is your surplus value mm -hmm. over your variable capital. Over your variable capital. And so when you, if those are equal, if this is 100%, then the relative increase in the value of variable capital or the relative magnitude there, of the oh, yeah, surplus the, capital is called the rate of surplus value. Yes. So yes. the more you can get your surplus value, the, the, the higher you can get that number <laughs> over your variable capital, the more money you have made. That yes. is the rate of surplus value. And as a capitalist, you, you want, that, want that to be as high as humanly possible. <laughs> yeah. Um, you also got to remember, you know, I mean, this is a simple fraction. You know, if S was 180 and... V was 90, then this would be 2 instead of 1, you know, or mm -hmm. 1 half. Or, I mean, it's, it's, it's just whatever it is, you know, on top of another thing, simple division, it's a regular fraction. So then he goes on and he was talking about what the labor has to do. Because remember, they bought labor power mm -hmm. and now they have to use labor and they want to make money back. Mm 
So the first thing labor has to do is reproduce the value of the labor power purchased, okay? Which was the sustenance, the the um, sustenance of the socially necessary labor. It's yep. it's how much the value of what I have to get out of this blob of people, you know, that I can pick out and make do my work. It's going to keep them alive. What is the minimum amount I have to pump into you in order to get you to come back and do the exact same thing tomorrow at infinitum and then reproduce, make more of you, and come back and keep doing this right, for all the Right, because I'm compelled to, to do as little as possible, or to yes. pay as little as possible because I want to make the most money. Okay? Exactly. And that's not, again, that is not a value judgment. That is just the way the system is designed. If you were doing it any other way, you'd, it would be wrong. Right. So um, then he says, the portion is today of this day's labors devoted to this purpose will be greater or less in proportion to the value of the necessaries he daily requires on average, or what amounts to the same thing in proportion to the labor time required on average to produce them. If the value of those necessities represent on average the expenditure of six hours of labor, the worker must on average work for six hours to produce that value, to reproduce his, his labor time. If instead working for the capitals, he worked independently on his account, he would, other things being equal, still be obliged to labor for the same number of hours in order to produce the value of his labor power, and therefore to gain means the subsistence necessary for his conservation of continued reproduction. And continued reproduction doesn't just mean popping out babies. That's nope. in there. It's, it's they included. Got, they got to, you know, put it out of class. But they really mean, like, that, that worker, you know, I need to be able to sleep and eat and get up the next morning and do the work. I can't just die on the job because then I can't keep working. And there's a certain point, and the whole point here is that there's a certain point, there's a certain number of, and again, we're going to get to it necessarily, but there's a certain amount of hours, time, worked, that you will have hit equilibrium there. At a certain number, we're, we're saying six in this in this example, but but after six hours, you have produced what it costs the cap, the equivalent of what it costs the capitalist to buy you's worth of labor. Yeah. So everything beyond that is gravy to capitalists. And because they're making, that's where they're making their bones. Yeah, and this is just, I mean, obviously an example. It's going to vary depending on the job. Wildly. Yeah. I mean, wildly. In, in, in an infinite number of ways it will, but. Sure, sure. But, I mean, we're talking about how the system works on a whole, and we're using an example where six hours reproduce this labor to see how the system works. We're explaining the system with an example. And so he talks then about how the laborer isn't really doing anything for himself, okay? You don't say, hey. You go, you know, pay me to do the work to, to make a bunch of cheeseburgers, right, for for 12 hours. I've reproduced that with the cheeseburgers I made in six hours. And, oh, by the way, I made a bunch of food for the kiddos at home and yeah. for me to sell on the side. Yeah, I don't have, like, a stockpile of cheeseburgers at the end of the day. Yeah, they've given them all to the capitalists. That's what he paid for my labor power to do. Mm -hmm. uh, so he says he creates surplus value, which the capitalist has all the charms of creation out of nothing. He's paid them for the labor time. And bam, the or the I'm sorry, the labor power. Yes. And bam, the labor's bringing it back. Okay. Says the portion of the working day I name surplus value labor time, and to the labor expended during that time, I give the name of surplus labor. It is every bit as important for the correct understanding of surplus value mm -hmm. to conceive it as more con congelation of surplus labor time, and nothing but materialized surplus labor. Okay. Mm -hmm. So he's saying, hey, you know, I mean, and, and congelize. He's saying. If everybody, you know, total labor, we're taking their value. If all the people are working, this is how much value is total created, and this is divided by the number of people in the system based on how socially necessary this work is. And it's socially necessary, you know, if there's a demand for it, obviously. It doesn't have to be like a need. And again, this, the important part there is, is again, it's, it is owing to the fact of, the, of this reproduction of the new value of three shillings. So every time you're essentially producing more 
your labor is producing more value than what it was bought for, uh-huh. that is what uh, that that is your surplus labor. And again, if there's one thing that we're noticing throughout this whole ordeal, capital the, the capitalist loves anything with the word surplus in front of it. Uh, <laughs> if it has surplus in front of it, he's down with it. Surplus labor, cool. Surplus capital, awesome. I am into all things sur- surplus value. Why not? Get on board. Uh, he he likes him some surpluses. Yeah. So see see if you can see if you can follow along and, and spot what the what's about to happen. <laughs> yeah, there's there's some guesses out there. I also want to do clarify one thing. Marx talks about time, like oh, after six hours we reproduce this because it's a simpler way to think of it. But not only are we not necessarily working in days, you know, most people get paid say hourly instead of daily. So Correct. you might think like through the hour, how much have have I produced? Yep. Um, instead of by the day, but. Excuse me. But on top of that, there's not like a set time that you're going to know, oh, I've re, you know, I mean, I think you talked about it in the last chapter. You're not going to yes. click like, oh, I've remade my value. No. And everything after this is free, right? And that is intentional. Of, yeah. And that's intentional. That's a big thing to notice that that is, there's a reason that that's the case. And there's a reason that when you say it out loud, it kind of sounds incongruous the first couple of times until you're like, wait a minute. Oh, oh, shit. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. And it's because the more alienated you are from that concept, the less likely you are to, after you've reproduced your value, stop. <laughs> yeah, and that may even vary within your own work. You know, I mean, the lights being on, that's going to be a constant expense. That's part of the constant capital mm-hmm. pumping into this. The machine wearing down is part of the constant capital pumping into this. You know, I mean, everything from the, the land rent bill of the factory, if they rent it, or their mortgage payment on it, if they, they own it and haven't paid it off, that's going to be part of this, this constant capital you know, pumped in there, right? But there's also going to be things that vary. You might be doing, you know, blue yarn into gloves, and then all of a sudden you're going to be pressing plastic into buttons for those gloves. Well, that plastic may have a different value than those gloves, and so you're not necessarily going to be producing value in the same way, depending on how you're switching jobs, doing things like that, you know. Aye, aye. Um, now, the essential difference, he says, and this is a big sentence to, to me in this chapter, the essential difference between various economic forms of society, between, for instance, a society based on slave labor and one based on wage labor, lies only in the mode in which the surplus labor is in each case extracted from the actual producer, the laborer. Okay? Now, what he's saying there is not that you know your capitalist is just whipping you with your paycheck. Um, it's... It's that the difference between him just forcing you to work as a slave mm-hmm. and him paying you is the way he gets this value is, is you know, in capitalism, he's going to say, okay, I'm going to exchange it for your labor power. We're going to go to the market and exchange this, and I'm just going to extract this value out of you. Whereas in slave labor, it's going to be more direct, plain force, you know. I mean, yep. maybe we've conquered your people, and we've done if it's that type of slavery. If it's chattel slavery, maybe I've bought you, like, another piece of constant capital, and I've just corrupt your humanity and, and bore you to the bone. And that is kind of depressed because that is, again, I think it's, I think that's kind of critical here is if you, if you were to break this down to its essentials, slavery was, uh, slaves were constant capital. They, they slaves were, were not, it, it was not in the, that's why the system doesn't work in that way. And Marx doesn't treat it like he doesn't treat slavery and capitalism as the same thing because a, a slave was not going there. I, again, the whole concept is you have to come up free will and all this other stuff. So, uh, a slave was a machine to these people, and that's just ter- I mean, it is just terrifying how how bad. Now, again, we're a couple chapters away from you realizing that it's not that much better now. But yeah. uh, but still, dear God, this is it's, this is fun. It's pretty bad. Now, I was uh, waiting till 
Senior's Last Hour was the next part of this chapter that I was worried about because most of uh, it is just kind of junking in and reinforcing that stuff, and it's it's a big old mess of words and math. But uh-huh. when you get down to it, right before he brings up Senior Last Hour, uh, he was talking about people practically in the process of how they get value and misunderstanding it theoretically. And he said, such people may get the notion in their heads that our spinner, the cotton spinner, for example, produces and replaces the first eight hour of his working day, the value of the cotton in the following hour and 36 minutes, and the value of the instruments of labor worn away the next hour and 12 minutes, and the value of wages he devotes to the production surplus value manufacturer only that well-known last hour in this way, uh, the poor spinner is made to perform twofold miracle, not only of producing cotton, spindle, steam engine, coal, oil, etc., but at the same time he spins with them, but also of turning one working day into five. From the example, we are considering the production of raw material and instruments and labor demands for working days of 12 hours each and their conversion of yarn another such day that the love of the looser induces an easy belief in such miracles, and the psychophant doctrinates are never wanting to prove uh, to prove them is vouched for by the following incident of historical celebrity. And now that's a lot of words, but he's saying, hey, you know, I mean, and, and he did bring this up. Like people mm-hmm. will will make. He'd spent a couple paragraphs, and this is what the capitals will say. And he says, oh, you know, they'll say he's just reproducing everything, you know. And he brought steam engine oil. He, he'll they'll say, hey. You know, this glove costs, it, it costs transportation to get here, it costs mining of the cotton, it costs all this, and so that labor has to reproduce all that value with his labor. Well, no, he doesn't. That's constant capital. That's going to transfer over. You know, you don't have to reproduce, and, and so they'll say, hey, I bought this yarn. you got to not only use this yarn to, to make it into gloves, you got to buy me back this yarn. Well, no, they don't. That yeah. value of the yarn is going right into the gloves. <laughs> but... Senior is uh, an English philosopher, economic guy, Nassau Senior, Nassau W. Senior. And they paid him, this was the big famous one, uh, some factory owners paid him to go out and say, hey, you know, I mean, you have to work to reproduce. Look at these machines. Look at all the stuff. you got. You got to get this back for me. How am I going to make any money? You know, I I need all this work from you. you got to work harder and harder and harder. It's this excuse, these lies of the capitalists. And... And you, you see that on the, the tax returns where the, the Amazon doesn't make any money. That's how a lot of that works, mm-hmm. right? They say, hey, i got to buy this. This is a business expense. I need Reinvested this. into the business. Right, reinvested into the No, it's just making the business money. You're just transferring that value, and you're holding it over the head so you can get labor. Uh, <clears throat> so in Senior's last hour, and <laughs> this beautiful first sentence, he said Senior was summoned from Oxford to Manchester to learn in the latter place the political economy that he taught in the former. The manufacturers elected him as their champion, not only against the newly placed Factory Act, but against a still more menacing 10 hours agitation. Now, we'll dig into that a little bit more in the next chapter. Yes, yes we will. Uh, but basically, there was, a, there was a Factory Act and a Corn Act that kind of went in England, um, and they were pretty hard-fought wins for what the working day was. Yes. It was and one of the first exam- I would I would say it's some of the earliest examples of, of labor legislation of any kind. Sure. Any. And he, he talks about why, why that happens, uh, some of the, the different partnerships that, that kind of happened where you have these false alliances with the working class. Mm-hmm. So we'll, we'll get into that. Um, and I also love this sentence where he goes through this, this whole 
uh, spiel, and he talks about you know the last hour of these twelve hours is what's delivered because the first eleven hours you have to reproduce all this value, the factory, the the goods, you know, and and so he talks about uh, one hundred and fifteen thousand pounds of of this hundred and twenty thousand has to be made, and he's got you know the remaining two twenty thirds is the last two and twenty three hour half hours every day. Um, and then he finally gets to like, you know, you have to do this last hour. And he says, and the professor calls this an analysis. And I with an exclamation Mission. point. Now the following analysis, parentheses, exclamation point. Yeah, so that was that was very, very Marx. Yeah. Uh, but he basically goes in and he says, yeah, this is all bullshit. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, we've already talked about constant capital. We deciphered that. And it sounds like in our podcast probably here that, that we just dictated that. But Marx didn't just dictate that. No. He figured that out. No, there were a lot of pages that. that we that we condensed down for you. You're yeah. welcome. Yeah. Um, so Marx basically was like, yeah, no. I mean, you're going to take the things and you're going to put them into the new things. And the new things will have that value. The entirety of the value of the new thing isn't the labor that was put into it by one stage of the process. Yes. It was the labor from all the stages. So baby. you're going to take the labor of the previous stages, inherit that cost of capital, and transfer it, and all you have to do is add the necessary value for your stage. Mm-hmm. So, and and all, the only thing you have to replace is maybe waste from the constant capital. If you don't think of that as capital that's transferring into the new good, and really, it kind of is. You know, the, the capitalist really just has to worry about his constant capital not being transferred, not being made up for. But... They're greedy. Yeah. yeah. So chapter 10 is the working day. Now, I'm going to posit something, and it's going to kind of come up. And so I want to drive this in in the overview because it kind of gets lost in the the shuffle of highlight things. Is Marx... Marx has no problem with rights. Rights are are a good thing, right? But Marx has a problem Mm. with people putting rights on on high, right? Because rights are going to be inherently idealistic, you know, say, this is the moral thing to have, well, who dictates that morality? Well, this fits that religion, you know, who, who has this religion? This is, well, this is our rights. Well, you know, that doesn't mean you shouldn't have the right to live and you shouldn't have, you know, the right to do these things. I mean, rights are, are pretty important. Yeah. But when you hold rights on high, not only are you, like, fawning for ideology and not caring about the actual effects of this stuff, but you're going to have rights come into conflict. And we see that all the time, you know. I mean, maybe someone might not, you know, want to violate their so-called religious beliefs, and another person might want to not be harshly discriminated against and have it channeled through a friggin' cake. I, and maybe I, maybe some people <laughs> want that super cool right to carry guns, and maybe some other people don't like getting shot at all the time. That's those yeah. Are some other there's some there's this fun. I, I, you see it in like libertarian dialogue all the time, and I'm not saying that as derogatorily as it sounded, it just is a hard thing to say without sounding mean. <laughs> um, it, you know, your rights extend right up to the point that they infringe upon mine. And that's a good, like, platitude, but it's, like, completely impractical for how the world actually works. Like, rights are coming into conflict constantly. Right, and who's the mine? Uh-huh. Like, who's, it's, oh, your rights work until they come into conflict with mine. Well, who gets to say, okay, here's the conflict, my rights win? Exactly. You know, that's not a solution. That's Exactly. Um, and if rights are going to be held on high, they, they they should be sacred. You know. So how do you determine who wins if both people show up to the marketplace with equal claims and equal well, rights and all sorts of fun stuff? At that point, you're going to have to look at the interests of the material conditions and win it by force. And yeah. that's, that's what this, this chapter is going to kind of introduce that. And it's going to kind of introduce it in a way that's 
in one way, just very theoretical. He's just trying to tell you how capitalism works. And this is the next stage of it and matches everything we said before. Mm-hmm. And another way, it almost feels clever because it's something that, like, <laughs> you know, you can relate to. It's simple. Yep. It's your work. And it clearly distinctifies what these two main classes are in ways that people have trouble, you know, understanding this so much now. Yes. Right. And again, when we say just just before you turn your brain off and say, "Man, we you know no one showed up with a gun and told you you have to go to work today," force is not necessarily. We're, we're not talking about a guy with a gun or threatening to break your kneecaps. <laughs> always, sometimes that's absolutely the case, but not always. There are yeah. force is a, a kind of a general concept here. Yeah, I mean, we've got to get past one time removed means it doesn't happen. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah. if if you're afraid to do something because society as a whole will punish you for it uh-huh. uh, by, like, say, starving you out, leaving you without a job, coming down on you, arresting you. That's <laughs> still force. It is absolutely And force. so someone can just, like, kind of say, hey, and you can know it's a societal expectation to go, oh, I better listen to that, hey. Uh-huh. That's still force. Yep. You know, um, it, these societal structures can be force, and when that force is, is harmful in a way that, these rights are coming in conflict. You can also think of that as violence. It's, it's a good way a lot of socialists think of it. Um, and that's sometimes a tougher thing for people to distinctify is force and violence. They think violence is there's blood and mm. force is, you know, someone's physically on me. And neither of those things are necessarily true. Uh, but let's get into the, the marks of it. I mean, because, again, let's... let's Yes. Not get too far off the no, line. No, 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 no. But that, that is a good, again, that's the good high level of where we're trying to get to with this. With yeah, this but this work is how people, you know, learn that stuff. We're also commenting on bringing it back to today mm-hmm. and the years and other philosophers that have branched off this and the real world applications of it. But if we focus just on the philosophy here, which is why we're starting with Das Kapital, he's going to start with, let's assume that a line A to B represents the length of necessary working time. And he's putting A to B, say, apart at the value of six hours, okay? Mm-hmm. So he says, say six hours, if the labor is prolonged one, three, or six hours beyond A, we have three different lines. So one is A to B and then to C, and C is like one-sixth as far from B as B is from A. Uh, you have working day two, where it's, you know, six hours and three hours, so you have A, two-thirds of the way down the line is B, and then all the way down the line is C. And you have working day three, where it's six and six, you have A, halfway through B, and then there's C, okay? And so the total of the first line is going to be seven hours, because it's six plus one. And now again, the, the these lines are, are explaining necessary labor time. Yeah, necessary. And necessary labor time is what we just learned. The time it takes for you to reproduce the value that you got bought for, for lack of a better word. Yeah, for, mm-hmm, for your uh, uh, labor power. For your labor power. Yeah, so A to B is labor power and B to C is surplus value. Yep. So seven hours, if, you know, you have seven hours and six of them being um, necessary labor power, you only get an hour of, of surplus. Man, um, that's not fun. <laughs> so he says the extension of B to C and the line A to B relate. Uh, represents the length of surplus value. The working day A to B plus B to C or A to C, it can vary with the, uh, it varies with the variable quantity of B to C. Yes. Since A to B is a constant ratio because your labor is power is six hours, six yeah, hours, no I mean, matter what. Right. Uh, the ratio of B to C can always be calculated. The working day, and so he's saying, you know, we already know what the labor power is worth. Just yep. find out the value left. Okay. Yep. So how much, and this is to determine how much surplus value we created. Right, right. The surplus value is always going to be hidden in that B to C. And so, you know, I mean, he's looking at these different ratios and he's saying, uh, in one hand, you've got surplus value of 16 and two thirds percent. Uh, another one, you have a surplus value of 50%. Another one, you have a surplus value of 100%. Hey, fun, fun, fun quiz time, guys. 
see if you've been paying attention. Which of those percentages do you think the capitalist would like to make on his investment? <laughs> Did you guess C? Congratulations. You're paying attention. Yeah. Um, and then he goes down a little more. It says, on the other hand, the working day has a maximum limit. It cannot be prolonged beyond a certain point. The maximum limit is conditioned by two things. First, the physical bounds of the labor power. You can't make more than 24 hours in a day. You can't make yourself more capable without sleep. You can't, you know, if you don't have electricity, you can't work in the dark, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so he says, within the 24 hours of a natural day, man could expend only a definite quantity of his vital force. A horse in the like manner can only work from day to day eight hours. During part of the day, this force must rest and sleep. During another part, the man has to satisfy other physical needs to feed, to wash, to clothe himself. Besides the purely physical limitations, the extension of the working day encounters moral ones. The laborer needs time for satisfying his intellectual and social wants, to the extent and number of which are conditioned by the general state of social advancement. Yes. So again, this is societally conditioned. If yes. if you live in America, you need to have a smartphone. You know, yes. I mean that kind of thing, right? Yes. Uh, the variation of the working day fluctuates, therefore, within physical and social bounds. And again, there is a there's a maximum amount of time that a lay, that a, that a working day can be, and that that's again the you know time limits and things. There's also Marx lays out a minimum amount of time that a working day can be, and that's whatever the amount of time necessary to, to create necessary labor. Yeah, it, so that's the minimum. Playing in these bounds. Exactly. Yeah. There are and, there are there are there are caps on this. And that was the big point of the the seniors' last hour bullshit was you know oh well my minimum is these twelve hours you know mm -hmm. and that sounds kind of brutal because we're used to thinking well there's an eight hour day and yeah. a lot of us work longer than eight hours. All yes, the time. many. I don't know how many ten eleven hour days? Many. I spend at AT and T staying on my damn feet. Uh huh. You know? But um, we think of a standard day as an eight hour day. We do. Case, no, you know? not even just happen overnight or out of the good heart of the capitalist. We'll mm -hmm. we'll learn a little. Hey, bit Hey, there that. was some of that force involved. Yeah, there was some of that force involved. Uh, so then he goes on. He says the capitalist bought the labor power at its day rate. Um, now we often do it at you know hourly rates, but we're Correct. sticking with days because that's the way it was working at the time that he wrote this. To him, its use value belongs during one working day. He has thus acquired the right to make the laborer work for him during one day. But what one. is a working day? Now we get into the fun. <laughs> We're asking what a day is, guys. Do you think it's going to get a little a little into the woods here? It's, yeah. We're going to have fun. Yep. Uh, so he says, as a capitalist, he is only capital personified. So that means, and, and this is a very important point, and people kind of miss this a lot, right? Marx talks about things being systemic, and so someone will hear that, and being disingenuous as they may, and the kind of, oh, you know, you socialists just want free stuff, people. Um, are going to say, oh, so there's no human will, there's no, and that's not true at all, okay? But you have to survive. You have to survive a certain way, you know? I mean, predators are out there, and they decide what prey to have, Whoa. where to sleep. Oh, I got real confused. I thought you were talking about Arnold. Like, like, no, that, no, 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 no. I was like, fuck, that's a bombshell. Thanks, not going to worry about that. Damn, <laughs> predator coming. I'm going to get naked. You should, you should put wait until Marx gets into aliens. Some, oh, <laughs> no. Yeah, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> but Call anyway, a, a, a lion, you know, for instance, is, is going to act a certain way in a pack. It's going to have different ones. But at some point, it's got to eat. It's got to hunt, right? Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't go, well, I don't really want to eat those gazelle. It goes, yeah, I kind of got to go kill that guy right yeah. there. So he's only meat eater personified. He has to do this. He's compelled to do this. A capitalist is only capital personified, okay? Unless he's going to fall and lose all of his power and be a wage laborer, which 
no one's going to do it out of the goodness of their heart. And unless you're doing something with that falling, you're yeah. really not doing it out of the goodness of your heart. You're no. doing it out of, like, being an ass. No, no, Elon's doing it. He's, in, he's on the floor with the workers. Oh, yeah, sleeping definitely. The, yeah, sleeping in the, sleeping heart, in the heart factory. Elon, yeah. yeah. Uh, but no one's going to do that. So they're going to be compelled to not only survive, but keep their power, not fall to the workers that they know they exploit. So they have to get their profit or their whole MCM falls apart because they don't just go, go yeah, I'm making enough money, I'm fine. There's going to be other capitalists out there, yes. and they're going to kneecap you if you just sit on your hands. This, again, is going a little bit beyond where we're at right now. We're still playing in the if the world was perfect, but yeah, that's kind of where we're well, getting at here. But even if the world was perfect, there's still competition. So, And he mm -hmm. did, you know, and that, that's where I'm getting into the sentence. He is only capital personified. He has to keep getting his um, surplus value out of you, or he doesn't get to eat. Capitalists are sharks. If they stop making capital or stop swimming... They die. Yeah, they die. You gotta, you gotta eat the fish. So, and and that's a good thing. You know, Marx talks about vampires a lot. In, he does. It's awesome. It's great. Uh, vampires, leeches—they're all good analogies. But the one I like the best because it, it underscores this capital personified is capitalists are predators, and we're prey. And this isn't the wild where that has to stay the same way, and that's how everyone mm -hmm. survives. This is a world where the prey can go. Mm, no, no, we don't want to even pray anymore because we're all the same goddamn species. So, uh, but moving on from that a little bit, he says his soul is the soul of capital, but the capital is one single life impulse, the tendency to create value and surplus value, to make its constant vector, the means of production, absorb the greatest possible amount of surplus labor. Capital is dead labor that vampire-like only lives by sucking out living labor. And again, dead labor meaning labor's done. It's got yeah. its value. Yeah. Okay. Oh. And lives the more... And the more labor it sucks. God, just God. He's there's very few. Again, the the amount of like whiplash you will get in Marx going from we're gonna do algebra to capital is vampire sucking the life out of the world. The man, the man can write for the love of God. It is so much freaking fun. Oh, you should see. I I, I love this book. You should see his shorter stuff. It's oh, oh, it's gonna get it's it's it, it's ten times snarkier. It's gonna get off the rails. <laughs> Uh, the time during which the laborer works is the time during which the capitalist consumes the labor power he's purchased from him. If the laborer consumes his disposable time for himself, he robs the capitalist. He's violating capital's rights at that point. Yeah! The capitalist then takes his stand on the law of exchange of commodities. He, like all other buyers, seeks to get the greatest possible benefit out of the use value of his commodity. You know, you don't want to buy a whole damn lawnmower just so you can suck the gasoline out of the tank oh. and throw it in the river. You know? Yeah. Uh, Suddenly, the voice of the laborer, which had been stifled in the room, and stress of the process and production arises. The commodity that I have sold you differs from the crowd of the other commodities, and that its use creates value, a value greater than its own. That's why you bought it. That which your side appears spontaneous expansion of capital is on mine extra expenditure of labor power. You and I know in the market only one law, that of the exchange of commodities. And the consumption of the commodity belongs not to the seller who parts with it, but to the buyer who acquires it. To you, therefore, belongs the use of my daily labor power. But by means of the price that you pay for each day, I must be able to reproduce it daily and to sell it again. Apart from natural exhaustion through age and etc., I must be able on the morrow to work to the same normal amount of force, health, and freshness as today. I want to meet this hypothetical laborer that's having this argument on the factory floor. Uh, yeah. Because I nowadays, that man is fired. 
Yes. That man does but, not work. This eloquent poet on the work floor does not exist. But he does know his shit. He, oh, he really yeah. Does. Oh, no. He's got a union rep, and that guy's going to come in and fucking lay some he hammers down. like he is the union he rep. He very well is. This is the guy. <laughs> this is the 18th century union rep. He's there. He's got a newsy cap on, and he's ready to fucking deal. Yeah. So then he goes down. He says, in the lawn, in the, uh, or he says, you pay me for one day's labor power, whilst I use three days, is what the capitalist is wanting. He's taking a third of its daily value and taking two thirds. Oh, See, I skipped a little bit there. Two thirds commodity. Yeah, because he's saying if you kill me, right? If yeah. you if you essentially short my life by thirty years, yeah. then rather than one out of three hundred and sixty-five times thirty, you know, you're getting one out of three hundred and sixty-five times, say, you know, ten. You're getting yes. you're robbing out, out my labor power out of me. So you're getting three times what you said. So you say you pay me for one day's labor power and you use three days. That's against our contract law of exchanges. I demand, therefore, a working day of normal length, and I demand it without any appeal to your heart, for in money matters sentiment out of place. So you know they're not going to do this out of exactly. I'm not, yeah, I'm doing this based on the my la- rights. This our hypothetical laborer here is saying, look, this this is not you want to get. Your whole goal, Mr. Capitalist, is to work me as long as you possibly can because the more you work me past those six hours, the more money you have made off your deal. Yeah. My argument is there's only a certain, there is a cap on that amount of time, and it is how long it takes me to come back and do that same thing ad infinitum over and over to keep making your investment worthwhile. And therein we get the fun tension of the, the laborer versus our, our capitalist, our, our ruling class versus our working class. We're getting very close to some fun terms. Yeah, and, and that's kind of what he said. You know, he said, hey, if I live for 30 more years and you cut it down to 10, you took one, one uh, 10,950th of my life and you made it 1,365th of it. You've taken three times your value. That's not cool. So he says, you may be a model citizen, perhaps a member of the Society of Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, and the odor of sanctity to boot. The thing that you may represent face to face with me has no heart in its breast. That which seems to throb here is my own heart beating. I demand the normal working day because I, like every other seller, demand the value of my commodity. And I love that. He's just like, fuck you, you're Portia DeRossi's character from uh, what is it? Arrested Development? So you know, I don't, oh. I don't really care. <laughs> oh my God! Yeah, it's, it's, it just is so. But again, it is, it is so concise. And, and herein, we're talking about force. So now we have our two, we have our two sides. We've established our two sides. We have laborer who wants, I need a normal working day. I need, I need what is considered a normal working day. And we have the capitalist who, I want the most value out of my labor. What? How do you reconcile who, which of these people with equal rights? Yeah, gets and their he, way. Says, he says, hey, I don't care if you gave $500,000 to the Save the Whales campaign. Exactly. You're sucking my life out of me. Exactly. That's if you, what took, I'm if you took a day off of my life, we have an issue. We have an issue. Also, is it kind of weird that we're like one of the only countries in the world that doesn't have a designation for worked to death? Like like in Japan, like if you died from overwork, that's a cause of death. That that is. That's but here in America, it's like there's no way to do that. Yeah, it's some like Japan. It's like the Germans have a word for it. like there's a there's a specific term for Germans have a word for everything. They do, and I'm sure they have one for this. But it worked to death is is an actual way you can die. And here we just don't acknowledge that that's even a possibility. And no. I think that's kind of, while funny, kind of interesting. Yeah. He continues on. We see that then, apart from extremely elastic bounds. The nature of exchange of commodities imposes itself no limit to the working day and no limit of surplus value. The capitalist maintains his rights as a purchaser when he tries to make the working day as long as possible and to make wherever possible two working days out of one. 
-hmm. On the other hand, the peculiar nature of the commodity sold implies a limit to its consumption by the purchaser, and the laborer maintains his right as a seller when he wishes to reduce that working day to one of definite normal duration. There is here, therefore, an anim antinomy. I don't know how to read Antimony, that Antimony, I think. I know what it means, but I, I don't know how to say it out loud. Agreed. <laughs> it's like when I can't pronounce banal or banal or whatever it is. Uh, but there, here is an, an antimony, right against oh, right, both equally bearing the seal of the law of exchanges. Between equal rights, force decides. So we talked about it earlier. Hey, decides, look at that. Force. Hence it is that in the history of capitalist production, the termination of what is a working day presents itself as the result of a struggle. A struggle between collective capital, the class of capitalists, and collective labor, the working class. So Boom! Yeah. What is it? 300 pa 343 pages in, ladies and gentlemen. We got titles. We have a working class. We have, oh, it's here, guys. Yeah. It's and, here. And, and uh, mind you, I mean, he took a long time building up to that because all of those details were important. Oh. I'm sure you know what he's talking about. I mean, people people didn't throw these words around like that back in Marx's day. It's like and that tantric sting sex. God. It's, it, it is there. Right there. It Woo! is there. It is, you know, it is very clear. And I will reiterate again, you know, Marx does analyze things, and you can see class strata within classes and you can kind of build it from context in the books too but here he says you know all that stuff doesn't matter there's two definite classes there's people that buy labor power and there's people that sell labor power and they're going head to head over this working day and this is the center of class struggle and th there's a lot of things that are going to branch off this yeah um and they all have to be fought together you have to all of it get to i mean you want to stop bad things right i mean you want to stop say slave labor in prisons you want to stop you know ex uh, the gender pay gap you yep. want to stop all these other things well those are all branches you can hack branches all day they grow back yep okay um you have to get to the root and mark's saying this is the root yeah and you know? it, it, it's really i i can't it, it kind of is upsetting that it's it's this uh there's no like big exclamation points in the book and like the the, the confetti doesn't come out because this is you've got the nugget the the whole history of uh, the whole history of this system is the tension between cap but between the, the collective capital class and and collective labor those two and banging heads and the other problem too is it sounds unprofound it sounds like you know oh because because the solution sounds like just fix the working day but Wait. Marx's point is that conflict's always going to be there you exactly. can't just fix the working day you have to disseminate these entire classes and that's going to stop this and all of the problems that we'll get into later that come from this yes um but I mean, it's it's big root is is this conflict. There's no answer. There is and this no is answer. very much in Marx the style that Marx does is this is he doesn't make he doesn't act like he came across some big giant thing here because in his again in the style that he used in the dialectic it, no that's just a lot it's a, it might as well be a tautology it's yeah. it, it is what it is this is obvious if you've been paying attention the whole time duh this is what it is what moving on like we we've got and, it and i'll come back to you know i mean the poorer someone is the more marginalized they are the easier this comes to them you know i mean you explain marx to, to someone who's been working in a service job and they oh go oh my god oh yeah my boss rides me on my my ass about my lunch breaks my boss is not going to pay me for driving to and from work for 45 minutes with gas i can't afford yeah. you know unless it's different from a normal commute or something and i have some high paying or job. those fun or those fun examples you said citations in your chat out number 45 uh, uh, 
the, the uplifting story you see on the news of the guy walking 22 miles one way to go work at his minimum weight, you know, his McDonald's yeah. job, and we treat that as if it's something admirable and not, oh my God, what is wrong? Why is this a thing? Yeah, but the Capitals doesn't care how you get there. Nope. That's not their problem. They just want the time they can maximize. Yep. And so, you know, getting to and from work, making your life again, you know, I mean, paternity leave and maternity leave. You know, we don't have paternity leave in this country and that's that's an issue for fathers it's an issue for feminism it's an issue for children it's an issue for everybody it's an issue for everybody it's a huge deal right but that comes down to this time the boss doesn't want to lose that time you know oh my god now i have to replace you temporarily oh my god i you know i have to pay you in this time or i have to pay you enough that you can take this time off you know and even on paternity leave go to regular maternity leave anytime you've worked and i've i know you've been on it one side, David. I know. I've again on the on the management side of it. I've seen it in all of its gross, gross eccentricities. When you have an employee come to you and say that they're pregnant, you have a fun series of emotions. Yeah. And it's depressing that one of those is, "Fuck, I've now lost a person. I now have lost labor. This sucks. Like yeah. that's fucked up." <laughs> Yeah, and that, that's kind of a reminder of, uh, uh, and we're long, a long way from, um, uh, like, petty bourgeois and, and some of these mixed classes. Because mm-hmm. um, management is a, is a mixed class. Yes, you know? oh, absolutely. I mean, it's like, it's like a cop, right? You might be a working class person, but everything you do with your life, all of your interests politically, yep. uh, at work, in your life, is completely centered on servitude. Yep to the, the um, capitalist class against the working class. Yes. So you can say, hey, I'm broke, or hey, I work for a wage mm-hmm. too. But nope. everything you do is against wage workers yep. and for class. You know, I mean, what the hell do you think an HR department is? That's yes. their lawyer. Yeah. Uh, oh, it's on your side. No, that's their no. lawyer. That's no. on their side. You know, and, and they're not the owners. They're, you know, they're not even technically the capitalists. So we'll get into mixed classes at, at some yeah, point. Yeah, and it'll be a very, when we get to mixed classes, trust me, there will be a whole supplementary episode of Nathan venting on all of the fucked yeah. up things he has been. But mixed classes are an interesting thing. You want to talk most about people force. in those have completely, Ugh. they've pulled the ladder up of they bought into, you know, who they are. They know whose side they're on and they've just internalized it so they don't realize this. But if a mixed class person was aware of it, it's, right? It's they would fun. go, and they would stop doing it. They'd quit that damn job, but they would go, Well, let's not get carried away. Oh, I know exactly. Well, yeah, I mean, they'd have to eat. <laughs> let's not get carried away. Let's not get carried away here, sir. But, I mean, they'd know exactly what's going on. They would see this. They would yeah. go, oh, that's bullshit. Why am I feeling this? Oh, that's what the owners feel. If they don't actually, like, talk to these people or worry about ours, they just worry about sucking people dry, you yeah. know? And so, and so what you do is you enlighten all the managers and then you screw with it from the inside. Yes. There's where the fu- That's where you suck your joy out of this system, bef- right before the revolution. <laughs> so he goes in section two, he says, The greed for surplus labor, the manufacture, and the boyard. And capitalism has not invented surplus labor. Wherever a part of society possesses a monopoly of the means of production, a laborer, free or not free, <laughs> I love that, I- quote-unquote, free or not free, Uh must add the working time necessary for his own maintenance and extra working time in order to produce for the means of subsistence for the owners of the means of production, whether the proprietor of Athenian, um, Acrustian, Roman, Norman, American slave owner, uh, Wachillian Bouillard, which is, I think that was in... uh, Molossian? Molossian. I don't know. And and, and the the second one was Etruscan. 
just just in case just in case we have any antiquities majors on okay. the phone uh, wanting to come across the table. It, it, Etruscans, <laughs> yeah, the Normans. I, I, yeah, I, I'm See, I, uh, so anytime we're doing antiquity, I'll just take over for a hot second and and, and run it. For yeah, us. I kind of faked it with the, the Spanish there. You did. No, I know it's you're... okay. It's it's a romance language. It's close, <laughs> but no, no, yeah. They, All right, the Etruscans so, are weird. The modern landlord or capitalist, you know, hence in antiquity, overwork becomes horrible only when the object is to obtain exchange value in its specific independent money form. And the production of gold and silver, compulsory working to death, is here recognized as a form of overwork. And so he says, but as soon as people whose production still moves within the lower forms of slave labor, or corvée labor, which is like yes. serfdom. Corvée, well, and, and this is important because this is a, from Marx really, really sees the corvée system as what uh, uh, exactly but he, he also sees it as there was this there was this conception he needed to correct that was serfdom was a thing unto itself and then it was worked into the corvée no the cor- the serfdom is a necessary extension of the of cor- of the corvée system it had to come about as a result of it there was no other way for it to exist in that way of life um, and that's that was something he he spends a long time going into because again in where Marx is at the the the, the signs of capital it's a lot harder to explain this in Marx's time than it is now. If Marx was doing this over again now, it would be super. Fu- I mean, it would be yeah. the easiest book in the world to write because it's <laughs> so we've gone so far. He was spotting it like at the genesis he saw where it was going to go shit <laughs> and now he's had like yeah here's all you proved all the points i had thank you good work <laughs> uh, but that's why he's talking about a, a, the corvette because no one fucking pays attention to the corvette system it's fucking ancient history as far as we're concerned we go back to feudalism and we think that's ancient history and to him it was like still a thing that was happening <laughs> so it, that's that's why it comes up but it is important and antiquity okay. is where he goes for his examples yeah so he, he you know says you're drawn to the whirlpool of international market dominated by the capitalist mode of production the sale of products for export is becoming their principal interest now we're talking about trade at this point mm-hmm. the civilized horrors of overwork are grafted in the barbaric horrors of slavery serfdom etc hence the negro labor in the southern states is how it was properly stated at the time it, it feels yes. gross now it, bro, God, but yeah. it's but hey i mean it you know i mean that, that was the right terminology we read the and, thing and about the uncircumcised jews we're going to read this too yeah we're, we're going to get too. yeah we're going to get through it and it says uh, the american union preserved something of a patriarchal character so long as production was chiefly directed to immediate local consumption mm-hmm. but in proportion as the export of cotton became a vital interest to these states the overworking of the negro sometimes using up his life in 7 mm, years of labor became a factor circulating in calculated system <laughs> It was no longer a question of obtaining from him a certain quantity of useful products. It was now a question of production of surplus labor itself. So it was with the corvée in the Dubian principalities, which are in Romania now. Yes. Um, uh, they're right off, the, right off the Danube, aren't they? Uh, yeah. I think so, yeah. That's yeah. what... Yeah, yeah, root yeah. word, yeah. There we go. But no, that is... that that. <laughs> we just need to... God, seven years. The concept of you... Think about that from, again, life expectancy being what it was. Ooh, that yeah. that you literally say, I'm going to work someone so hard that they will on average die in seven years. Yes. I'm actually, I'm trying to remember if it's this chapter or chapter God. 15. Because I always get this chapter and chapter 15 mixed up. But there's one of them. I don't. It's a great where, convenience of not having read the book. <laughs> but it, it, there's, there's one of them where he talks about what makes chattel slavery different from regular slavery and so grotesque. And he talks about that 
he now all of a sudden thinks of the slave rather than a captured person doing a service of a form of surplus oh. labor. And so he thinks of them like a mule, yes. but more efficient. And so, you know, when there's... And, and he was talking about how capitalism, and, and we'll get into that, capitalism always has this excess of of labor power waiting to, to jump in. It has to. It's a necessity of it. And he'll yes. describe why. And he said, you know, that was part of chattel slavery, right? If they had a bunch of extra slaves, what do the hell they care if they die? They'll work yep. them to death. They'll work them ten times harder as a mule. A mule's more expensive to replace than a slave. They'll just buy another slave. You know? Um, whereas well, when, they had to treat them a little more humanely when there was less of them. And around. then, and, you know, no, you didn't. You didn't. Well, All you had to do was put in l- rules that said, if my slave runs away, I can go hunt him down. Whereas before, if they were acting, you know, if Kunta Kinte was getting lippy with you, you could just kill him. Whereas when there were less of them, you had to, you know, break his will and make him your slave. Well, yeah, it's, I mean, oh, we, uh, I, I was going to say, God. don't say no, you don't. Just realize that, that the, the Overton window <sighs> of humanity here God. is just way out there. Yes. Chattel slave. And also know it wasn't long enough ago for you to brush it off. No. <laughs> I have a whole other podcast about that. Come and join yeah, me. No, Jesus. It was not that long ago. Jesus. Oh, man. It's a very much part of our culture now, too. Yeah. Uh huh. And that was only half the thing. I mean, we do have the whole 200 million indigenous people mm. genocide. Oh, yeah. No, we skip right past. Country. We, 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 that's <laughs> built in. That's baked in the cake, baby. Yeah. Uh, so it, then he goes on a little bit about the corvée system. He says, part of the land was cultivated and severality is a freehold of the members of the community. Another one was cultivated by them in common. So the products of their common served partly as reserve fund against bad harvests mm-hmm. and accidents. And it was just this public fun. And then it started becoming this, you know, cost of war, cost of religion. And of course of time, the military, the church, mm-hmm. they kind of, started sucking it up along with the common land and the labor was set upon. And all of a sudden, the labor of these free peasants was transformed into the corvée system, the thieves of the common land. So this is saying, you know, these group of people would get together and they, they each have their own little farm. Mm-hmm. And then there was a big group of farm. And this was essentially like the, the state stuff, mm-hmm. right? The state, the church, the bad times, all that. And all of a sudden, like, some people in the militaries and the churches went, hmm, we can get greedy because they're they're <laughs> they're letting us say which way goes, and there's yeah. there's no pressure on us, you know. It'd be real easy to cut taxes so that we can give money back to people. We don't need that social <laughs> security. Yoink, yoink, pocket that. Um, and and so that kind of goes into the survey sy- or corvée system. Corvée system. Yeah. Corvée system. Um, and that's what kind of made it. So then he gets a little bit back into the the um, working day because he was talking about the corvée you would supposedly work these 12 days yes okay um, it was 12 days for the, the one day in the field or one, one day, day in the field yeah. carrying and all of a sudden you kind of realize well this isn't really one day you know you start doing three days worth of work here and there and all of a sudden stuff was, was adding up to where it's you know 30 days worth of work and 100 days worth of work in these 12 days because 12 days was an amount of, of work done yeah. Um, the way we think of time now is a little radically different than back then. Obviously, days, hours, that's all the same, okay? When I say time, I mean like a working day. Um, you know, right now, a working day is I spent a day doing work. Yeah. Because that's what was agreed upon. That was the yeah. contracts I'm doing. Or hourly. I've worked for this hour. you got to pay me for my hour, you know? that That's a product of the system, right? Used to be a working day was you got stuff done. Maybe a working day was two hours. Maybe it was fourteen hours. It depended on the job. You know, it might even not be in a day, but it was what you considered a day's worth. And you know, maybe you slacked off or you started a weird time or whatever. But it was a day's worth of work. Um, 
so all of a sudden we're figuring out these working days. And so we're getting into the provinces and we're talking about the Factory Act of 1850. 50. So the Factory Act of 1850, which is in England, now in force in 1867, allows for the average working day of 10 hours in the first five days. And um, yeah, 10 hours the, for the first five ten. days is 12 hours, six to six. Uh, less breakfast and dinner, leaving ten and a half working hours, and eight hours on Saturday from 6 a.m. to 2 p.m., less half an hour subtracted for breakfast. <laughs> Sixty working hours are left, ten and a half for each the first five days, and seven and a half for the last. Okay, so that's... we're still off on Sunday, because it's the Lord's Day. And right, that's it's what the Mr. Gattaker, Day. That's so what Mr. That was, Gattaker told me. Yeah, so that's what the, the Factory of Act of 1850 kind of said. Now, yeah. that, that seems like, oh, well, that's... That seems case. super liberal. That seems super well. Okay. Comparatively, Compared that to seems yeah. su- to, to to me knowing where we're at at this time in history. Yeah. That seems pretty. That seems pretty generous on their part. I'm, I'm assuming there was nothing absolutely wrong with this at all at the time, right? Yeah. No. I mean, they they just handed it over. Yeah. Yeah. Just, so, Parliament was was feeling great that day. Yeah. So what you had is you had these House of Commons and they had their factory inspectors. Okay. Um, now, I mean, these labor inspectors, these were people pushed up by the people, and they were pushed up because there was a little bit of tension between the capitalists and the old monies. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they didn't like each other much. No. They were like the Republicans and Democrats. They're, you know, it was a matter of, like, do you want to die because your landlord's sucking you to death, or do you want to die because your boss is sucking you to death? But yes. they hate each other, so you could pretend to pick sides. Yes. And sometimes you could build little temporary alliances it's just a question of how much those do and, and how far they get you. And this is, again, this is part, that, that tension is predictable. And, and again, you can see it. If you follow Marx, the, the landed, the, the capitalist is going to be in direct opposition to, he's taking over for landed gentry. That's, yeah. that's his, that's his, that's what he's usurping. Is people that just were, were making their money off of, I was born here and this is my land. Now it's, I have this money here and this is my factory. It's the same thing. It's, yeah, one of them I takes mean, over who, for the other. Who who gets to control the lower classes and, uh-huh. and own the governments was the dialectic issue before the working day. Correct. You know, I mean that that that's you saw the French Revolution and the, the American Revolution and all these revolutions. That, that was a revolution. You know, yeah. I mean it was hey we're these rich guys, um, but we're not the aristocrats and we're tired of the aristocrats' hereditary bullshit. We're going to go out and we're going to say, hey, we're rich. We just want that money to be power now. Yeah. So you can kiss our ass. And they, they turned it over and then voila liberalism. Uh, it wasn't quite that simple, but that's that's the dialectic answer for it. Yeah. Right. So, um, so it says, thus the factory inspectors report in the period of crisis, which this was 1857, 1858, is after 1850. Uh, one of them said, it may seem inconsistent. There should be any overworking at a time when trade is so bad. That seems a little weird. If trade's so bad and not making money, why would people overwork? But the very badness leads to the transgression by unscrupulous men that they get extra profit of it. In the last half a year, says Leonard Horder, 122 mills in my district have been giving up. 143 were found standing. So that means things were downsizing. Almost half these mills were closed down, (laughs) right? Says, for a great part, or, I'm sorry, and yet overwork continued beyond the legal hours. For a great part of time, said Mr. Howell, owing to the depression of trade, many factories were altogether closed, and still greater number were working short time. I continue, however, to receive about the usual number of complaints that half or three quarters of an hour a day are snatched from the workers by encroaching upon times professedly allowed for rest and refreshments. Your manager Wait, is cutting that. in on your lunch break. He's cutting in on your lunch break. Wait, or he's saying, that. hey, you have to work eight hours. You get all your eight hours of work done. Oh, 
before you go home, clean up. Uh huh. Oh, and the times professor lay around for rest and refreshment. Uh, you know who solved this one? Capitalist number two that we'll bring up today, Jeff Bezos, by just not letting people go to the bathroom. So they just like shit on people's lawns when they're making deliveries oh, and stuff. That's not unique to him either. Uh, oh, I know. Who does that? Oh, uh huh. Hundred yeah. percent. But Jeff's the fun one right now. So yeah, we're, we'll, we'll put Jeff. We'll put Jeff on. I don't know the CEO of Purdue. <laughs> Jeff's easy to put on blast. Yeah, Jeff. Okay. So good. Good point there. Good work, Jeff. Put your <laughs> put your vest on, you weird Android. Bezos or whatever the hell uh, it is. Bezos. Bezos. Bees. Man's made of bees. Um, but yeah, I mean that's that's kind of an idea behind it, right? We have all these places shutting down and downsizing yeah. because things are slow. But the ones that are remaining, they're like. Well, shit, I gotta make more profit. Mm-hmm. So they're digging into stuff. So you have this act, this law that's saying, oh, well, you have this hour and a half of lunch break. And they're going, oh, well, I mean, you, you gotta go work on that. That's, mm-hmm. no, that's, that's our time now. And it's a little hard to think of with hourly. You say, oh, I get paid by the hour, right? But, I mean, this is work off the clock. Yeah. You know, work off the clock is bad. Uh, so he says the same phenomenon was produced on a smaller scale in the cotton crisis from 1861 to 1865. I wonder what caused the cotton crisis. Hmm. <laughs> 1860s crisis in cotton. Oh, man, I wonder. Uh, anyway, he God. says it was sometimes advanced by the way of excuse. When a persons are found to work in a factory, either at meal hour or some illegal time, that they will not leave the mill at the appointed hour. Oh. The compulsion is necessary to force them to cease to work. They won't stop working. Oh, they just love working. Shit. Oh, and the pro- here's the depressing part. Especially on Saturday afternoon. I genuinely believe that someone thought that. Like, someone had to think. Oh, is, there are suck-ups out there. there yeah. Someone thinks that's true. But, but the other part of it is, is that... And I don't know if we get to it in this chapter or not, or if I'm just mixing in fun outside. This is at a time in history where you saw this. If you go back through this primary source literature, there's this wide movement towards, in, in colonial provinces especially, having to, to beat the concept of time into their workers, beating the concept of regular work schedules and work time discipline and all this into people. Because the workers were so inherently lazy that they just, if they if they only had to work five hours, well, then they would just fuck off and they, you wouldn't get them for the other eight because they didn't need to be there. So you had to pay people less because otherwise, if they could afford to not work, they wouldn't work because people were inherently lazy. And yet in here, you're supposedly being told that, no, the, the man is just so committed to his smelting mill that he's just going away at it even though the boss is trying to rip him away he won't he doesn't want him to do it we were talking about the 1860s and cotton it's weirdly familiar how you know <sighs> african americans used to just love the slave work and get into it and they're just hard-working amazing people they're singing songs in the field and and, and they're singing songs in the field and they're they're uh, um skipping you do dying all day <sighs> and then all of a sudden they're freed from the slavery and they're lazy yeah and they're, they're not working, and they're just causing trouble. And it's uh-huh. like, weren't those the same people? So, yeah, I mean, these arguments, hypocrisies is there. And, again, th- and this is a big takeaway here. Hypocrisies uh, clarifies these lies. I mean, all of these are bullshit. Yeah. But beyond clarifying as lies, what's important is that they're lies, and what's important is why they're lying. The yeah. hypocrisy's not the problem. No. It's just, hey, look, that's a lie. Yeah. So, you you know, it's not like these people are going to go, oh, you're being hypocritical. Oh, yeah, no, I did say that before. Whoops. I take it all back. <laughs> you fooled me. No, they're, they're just going to keep bullshitting because there's a reason they're lying. They have to. They have to. But uh, he says, you know, they were especially compelled to work on Saturday afternoons. But if the hands remain in a factory after machinists ceased to revolve, they would not have been so employed if sufficient time had been set apart, especially for cleaning either before 6 a.m. or after 2 p.m. on Saturdays. 
The profit to be gained by it, overworking the violation of the act, appears to be to many a great temptation, a greater temptation they can resist. They calculate upon the chance of not being found out. And when they see the small amount of penalty and cost, which those who would have been convicted have had to pay, they find that if they should be detected, there will still be considerable balance in gain. So the theory is, is that the overtime that you are making by working extra time is worth getting caught by this act and paying the fine for working too many hours, yada, yada. Because as far as I understand it, those fines were levied against individual workers, correct? If you were working more, they assumed that you were trying to grift the system and then they would they would hit you with the fine. Yeah, but even if you're they're, they're hitting the capitalists, right? If you're making $9,000 more in profit from squeezing out labor yeah. and all of a sudden, you know, you get slapped with a fine when you do get caught and it's $5,000... Or hell, it's even ten thousand dollars. But you can do this nine thousand thing over and over and over and get caught once in a blue moon. You're making money. Wait, I wonder if this is anything like that whole financial crisis thing. Yeah, they, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. It's, it's weird how when you find banks I've never like heard one of tenth, this one, oh, yeah, like, like oh, slap on the wrist and they move on. Like, <laughs> I don't know, Wells Fargo. Maybe you just had to pay a billion dollars and yet you're still somehow in business. Yeah. Now, I mean, obviously, for the most part, up to here, and something that's overriding all the way through Chapter 25 is we've pretty well dealt with things meeting the laws of exchange. And this meets the laws of exchange. It's not the law of, of the land, but it's it's still breaking the rules. So why is Marx finally pointing out where they're breaking the rules? Well, it's to drive home this point. You know, I mean, this is showing, hey, this is what the capitals work on. You know, they're fighting this battle. We, you might not be fighting it, or you might think you're fighting it, or you might think it's, it's, you know, everything's fine, the laws take care of it. But the laws aren't stopping it. The capitals no. are fighting this battle all the time. And the big line that he puts in here are, moments are the elements of profit. Mm-hmm. That's a fun one. That yeah. is a, that is a, that, that burned that into the fucking sun. Yeah, <laughs> moments are the elements of profit. It is it is true to the end. Yeah. So he says nothing is from this point of view more characteristic than the designation of the workers who work full time or as full timers, and the children under thirteen who are only allowed to work six hours as half timers. So the worker here is nothing more than personified labor time. All individual distinctions are merged from the full timers and the half timers. Now that's pretty loaded. Yeah. Uh, so let's let's break that down a bit. A little bit. Uh, so first thing, we've heard of full-timers and part-timers. Yeah, uh, one so of them now, gets benefits. Yeah, so now you're going back and seeing the roots, right? Why are there part-timers? Well, that was supposed to be the child labor. So if you're an adult at <laughs> a part-time job, they're fucking you over like you're a 12-year-old in England, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, part-time is bad. Thank you, gig economy. Oh, my God, yeah. Hey, you know, if you only work 13 part-time jobs, it's great. You get all the perks of full-time employment with none of the benefits. It's great. Yeah. The second thing is they are definitely just thinking of you cogs in the wheel. You know, the, you are just my labor. And that's all there is. To, to where they even recognize parts of your humanity that is literally managing you. That's why they're called managers. They have to manage you as the person that is giving them the labor. So you deal with the fact that they're human because I don't really care. Right, and, and you stay on my side. You kind of channel their humanity into this labor time. All I want them to be is labor time. Just make them labor time, shut them up. That's what a manager does. That's what, you know, I mean, so you could see even built into the language that they're saying this. And if you pay attention to language, sometimes the meeting's not Mm -hmm. what's present right away, but they say what they mean in the ruling class because they don't have consequences. And sometimes it's right there on its face, the full-time or part-timer thing. And sometimes you got to think a little deeper. Uh, I don't know if it was here I mentioned before, but 
you know, you'll hear about these consumer rights, consumer rights, consumer mm -hmm. rights. Well, they mean consumer rights, but the consumers are the capitalist mm -hmm. consuming labor power. Yeah. You know, so they, they, they'll say what they mean on their sleeve. And sometimes you got to think a little differently. And other times you got to go, well, the language gives it away, mm -hmm. you know, and just pay a little more attention to it. So then he goes into section three, he says, branches of the legal, uh, of the English industry without legal limits of exploitation. Now, let's get clarified here. We, we dealt with vampires a couple sections ago. Yeah. We're about to go full twilight here. The werewolves are coming. The werewolves are coming. So we have hitherto considered the tendency to the extension of the working day, the werewolf's hunger for surplus labor, and a department where the monstrous abstractions not surpassed, says an English bourgeoisie economist, by the cruelties of the Spaniard to the American redskins. Oh! Caused capitalism Ooh. to last be bound in the chains of legal regulations. Oh. There's another fun one. There's another fun one. I don't I don't like that I... I but again, I'm yeah. reading right off there, and sometimes just, that personifies yeah. the thing at the time. You know, yeah. I mean, Spaniards went over to the Americas. They did. And how incredibly brutal they were. To the American Washington football team. To the American Washington <laughs> To To, God, they need to change that name. But it's, again, that's a branch. It's a fucking branch. Uh -huh. Just hit the root. Yep, yep. Uh, but, you know, he says, thanks to this this cruelty, just flying right past it. Hey, you're not them. All of a sudden, you know, this regulation suddenly loses some power because it can just channel it into the same kind of brutality. Yep. Spanish showed us how to do it. That's There's kind of a nudge into imperialism there. Um, you might, well, you might be familiar with imperialism. We'll, we'll uh, get into that in other books. That's, yeah, that's not going to going to hit as much in this book. We'll find one. We'll, we'll find one. That with other books. Um, so then he starts talking about the pottery districts. So what he's getting into here is used to be it was just men worked. Okay? Correct. And Obviously, you know, in a progressive nature, women having the same opportunities as men is good. But women getting that in capitalism didn't really come in the way of no. equality. No. It came in the way of, you know what, we're paying you the subsistence, right? Remember, labor power is just the means of survival <laughs> of reproducing your labor. Well, if part of that is taking care of your family, how are we going to cut back on that? We're going to make your whole, whole family work. And your bring the kids! Work. Your wife's going to work. Your kids are going to work. Part-timers! It's all going to work. So oh, this was really, really insidious. And Marx is not a fan when you read through this. But we're going to get into some of these, these gory details. And we're going to skip down to the pottery districts. Again, there are a lot of bad things in here that we're skipping because they're very specific to England at the time. But these are things that they're, they're, I mean, he's using it as an example to write at the time, but you can see it in today's world. These are just examples of the time. So he said, talks about an inspector, says, Dr. Greenhouse states the average duration of life in the pottery districts, which is where all these kids were working in these pottery factories from six o'clock in the morning till, you know, past dinner, right? Um, and, and he was talking about 10-year-olds and 8-year-olds and stuff working in there. He says, the average life expectancy is extraordinarily short, although the district of Stoke only has 36.6% and 34.4% in the adult male population above 20, 36.6% of the population are adult male, 30.4% are over 20 and employed in the potteries. Among the men of that age, the first district, more than half, and the second, nearly two-fifths of the whole deaths as a result of the pulmonary diseases among the potters. A medical practitioner at Hanley says. So he's saying, you know, these boys are working from an early age in pottery. 
right? And that's literally killing them. Now, we talked before, the capitalist wants the whole class to survive. So what's going on here? Well, he's getting greedy. He's getting ruthless. Left to their own volition, capitalists will kill themselves by killing you first. You can see that with global warming now, right? Global warming isn't going to kill the richest of the rich. They're actually, oh, we got to go to Mars. We got to go to Mars. Got to go to Mars. Like, no, you're not going to die from the damn global warming. The global south is the coastal people are, the poor are, because the sea levels are going to rise, food's going to dissipate, and who's going to get left behind? Well, the people whose homes are destroyed, the people getting hit by the natural disasters with no insurance and recovery. And no ability to just go buy another house over there. Yeah, no ability to buy another house over there. People that can't panic and move up away from the floodplains. Uh, the people that... that uh, let's see, I lost my train of thought. Um, people can't travel. You know, things like that. So, that you know, global warming is going to hit the poor first. It's, it's going to decimate food sources. It's going to exacerbate weather. It's going to be a big problem. The rich are still going to survive. But then they're going to die or they're going to become the laborers and they're going to die as the rich and and become uh, the proletariat because they're going to have to start doing their own work if we all die off. They don't care. Enra, or, uh, Exxon Mobil's not going, oh God, if global warming happens, we won't have all these workers to exploit. They're going, mm, I can make a little more money. Let's mm. pop that damn gas out of there. Yeah. You know, so again, left to their own volitions, capitalists will kill themselves by killing you first. And this is talking about it directly with labor hours. And this is talking about it doing child labor. Uh, again, noxious chemicals happen. There's a lot of this stuff that's, fights have been won over the years that regulate these businesses and that's not, that's why they, they don't do these noxious chemicals. Uh, so he says, the potters of the class, both men and women, represent a degenerated population, both physically and morally. I don't know why that's in there. Uh, they, of course... That is how they thought of people, you know, poor and desperate. They still do. Uh, there are, as a rule, stunted in growth, ill-shaped, and frequently ill-formed in the chest. They become prematurely old and are certainly short-lived. They are phlegmatic and bloodless. I don't think they're quite bloodless. <laughs> <laughs> and exhibit their debility of constitution uh, by obstinate attacks of dyspepsia. <laughs> Burping? It's... I, they burp a lot. They, I think I think it means hiccups in this case. They, they can't breathe properly. Oh, okay. All amazing. right. Uh, and disorders of the liver and kidneys, and by rheumatism, which is of oh, course arthritis. God. But of Damn. all diseases, they're especially prone to chest disease, to pneumonia, phthitis, bronchitis, asthma. One form would appear peculiar to them, as is known as Potter's asthma. Oh my. Or Potter's consumption, because oh they, yeah, they, the good old yeah consumption. I don't think people realize what consumption is as a disease. Tuberculosis. Yeah, it's it's, it's not the good old nice. TB. Also, fun fact: there was a, a distinct trend where tuberculosis was sexy, and people were intentionally making themselves look like they had tuberculosis because it was seen as basically like the emo of the day, and you were like deep in thought because you were dying slowly. Uh, that's a thing, and that's terrifying. If you want to go, you you think eating Tide Pods is stupid? People were dressing up like goths, but because they thought they were actually dying, because they thought that made them cool. <laughs> that was a thing. History Thank is stupid. Thank you, nihilism. All right. So anyway, uh, scrofula attacking the glands or bones and other parts of the body is a disease of two thirds or more of the potters. That the old degenerousness of the population of this district is not even greater than it is, is due to the constant recruiting from adjunct, 
adjacent country and intermarriages with more healthy races. Now, this obviously kind of underscores race as a, a social construct is, you know, this that group of people that's unhealthy and dying and but they would go to the next town over and they they'd hook up with people and and you know, and that was interracial. Well, it, you know, it was white and white, but it was white and poor and white and richer. Race is entirely a social construct. Obviously Marx um he talks very plainly about the redskins and the Negroes and all these gross things now. Yeah. But he pays attention to that because in Europe, you know, he may be an atheist, but he was ethnically Jewish. Yep. And he was olive-skinned. He was not light-skinned. Um, yeah, the black and white photos don't do a good job. Yeah. Uh, that's not that's not a good thing to be in, in, in the uh, no. land where they use terms like Aryan. No. So, no. yeah. yeah no. He got off to good, jolly old England, though. Yeah, yeah. He did, he did make it to England there. A little paler there, so he stuck out even more. Significantly. <laughs> uh, let's see. So we're going a little more into the potteries, and then we talk about a little more into child labor. We talk about one of the instance, uh, one of the witnesses for Commissioner White, and this is talking about ragged, half-starved, untaught children. They're not getting educated in these different towns like Bristol and Liverpool. He says, of the witnesses Commissioner White examined, 270 were under 18, 50 were under 10, 10 were only 8, and 5 only 6 years old. And these guys were getting worked beyond what the, the act said they could work their 8-hour so, days. So, not 8 hours, 10-hour days, but with a, with a break. Yeah. The, he was saying a range of the working day from 12 to 14 to 15 hours, night labor, and th- they were really big on, on, and he illustrates it in this chapter, Night labor for the kids at this time, um, and we'll we'll get more into to some of the night labor there. But that that was something that they spurned on the youth. He said irregular meal times, meals for the most part taking very workrooms that are pestilent with phosphorus. And Dante would have found the worst horrors in his inferno surpassed in this manufacture. I mean, just brutal working Jesus. conditions. Because, again, left to their own volitions, why would they want to pay for that? Yeah. Right? And when not left to their own volitions, that's just constant capital. Yep. <laughs> you know, that's yep. that's a means of production. If your, boss, if your boss buys you a nicer desk, mm-hmm. they're not sucking up to you. That's a means of production to make you more efficient. It is. But left to their own volition, left without, like, people, technocrats going, you know... If you do this and make your workers more ergonomic, you'll make more money. And without the government coming out on regulations because they don't want the socialist revolution to very quickly happen. Well, or, and more importantly, even if you had those two things, you could have the technocrats, but if you didn't have a, and again, if you didn't have a very organized and very violent labor movement, yeah, none of this stuff would have changed. Yeah, I mean, this is capitals off their own militias. They do this stuff. And people think, oh, well, back in the day, you know, back when they sent the eight-year-olds in the coal mines, <laughs> at least this is in 1910 now. Well, why the hell isn't this 1910? Yeah, I was about to people say. People change that. There's a reason. It would be again if you let it. Right. Time is not some linear progression where things just magically get better. <laughs> uh, uh, as opposed to what every member of the Democratic Party right now would like you to believe. <laughs> Slow incremental change will get us there, people. Yeah. Um, so then he was talking about, there was another friend, inspector, Mr. Smith, and he was talking about machine work not being great. And he said, on the whole, manufacturers declare with indignation against their proposal to stop the machines at least during mealtimes. He really, they did not want to stop. Because, again, if you stop these machines, that's extra cost. Mm-hmm. You know, their they're constant capital is losing value. And I guess I kind of glazed over that. I didn't highlight the right one. But... Um, one thing he says in this chapter is, you know, constant capital is going to direct its value into new capital. But there's two reasons that that value is not just sitting there lasting forever. 
One is machines break down when they're not being used. You know, I mean, gasoline will go bad, machines will collect dust. So the faster their value is used up, the better off it is. But also, someone else may make, you know, the same machine. Like a new business may pop up as a competitor to you, and that will bring your value down because now less labor is necessary to make it, there's more labor doing it. Or, you know, they might make a machine to make things more efficient, and you're falling behind because all of a sudden that efficient machine goes out there, there's a temporary little gap of time where that capitalist is making more than the value on things because, you know, the, the value of, of the product hasn't adjusted because congealed labor isn't up to using that machine. But then everybody else gets that machine and the value of that product goes down. Well, if that value of product goes down based on this new machine and you're stuck on the old machine, you're losing money. So they want to use that up fast, fast, fast. They don't want those machines sitting down. So they're not just trying to get the most profit out of you. They're trying to use up their constant capital as quickly as possible and replace it with more constant capital that allows them more of the C prime or the M prime that they mm -hmm. wanted way back in chapter four. Yep. Uh, but that also allows them not to fall behind or not lose value of their constant capital. So he says a clause, Mr. Otley manager of the wallpaper factory in Burrow, which allowed work between, say, 6 a.m. and 9 p.m., would suit us very well, but the factory hours, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., are not suitable. Our machine is always stopped for dinner. What generosity, Marks puts. <laughs> that, Jesus. <laughs> he says, there's no waste of paper of color to speak of, but he adds sympathetically, I can understand the loss of time not being liked. <laughs> and then he goes on. Says the report of the commission opines the naivety of the fear of some leading firms of losing time, i.e., the time for appropriating labor of others, and thence losing profit as sufficient reason for allowing children under 13 and young persons under 18 working 12 to 16 hours a day to lose their Let dinner. That, that. This, this needs to be restated, and it needs to be restated importantly. Losing profit is not a sufficient reason for allowing children to miss dinner. So it is. I don't. The capitalists are mad that that's the case. Yes. Because to them, it is sufficient reason. Yes. The, the, yeah. the, they're they're arguing that that wait a minute. You're telling me that losing profit is not a good enough reason to keep them from having to not eat. Uh, and again, kids were eight. Kid, people under eighteen working twelve to sixteen hour days. Yeah. Um, I know. Thirteen in some cases too. You know, I mean, it's it, not even middle schoolers. And nor, and again, the other thing is, is they're, they're what we kind of skipped over a little of this. The the sometimes they wouldn't even let them. They would feed them, and they would act indignant. Well, I fed them. They yeah. kept working the machine, and I shoveled it. They're treating them like an engine. Like I'm going to shovel some coal into the furnace <laughs> and keep my little twelve year old, you know, tugboat going. Like. It, it, it's insane. They treat. Well, if you think that you're not being treated like a machine, this should pretty clearly call that as bullshit. And that that comes back as that those uh, amenities. You know, those amenities are just capital. They're they're just there to try to get you working far. They're not actually doing you a favor. Yes. You know, they're they're there to get you working harder. I actually had a boss. Uh, the the daughter's the owner's daughter bought all these new chairs, super expensive ergonomic chairs for us, and they had us take pictures to thank her for the chairs. And it's like, why aren't you thanking us for the work? And thank uh, God, everyone in my section of work kind of went, Ugh. yeah, like realized how degrading that was. Yeah. And then of course, because again, we later, thank her for the chairs, but they 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 well, I paid you for your work, so yeah. I don't have to thank. And then that's a week later, guess suit. what was happening to my back thanks to that chair? Fucked up. Fucked up hard. Uh -huh, Thank uh -huh. God I married to a chiropractor. Yep. <laughs> and I changed chairs immediately. Stealing her labor. Yes. You. 
Filthy. Uh, then he's talking about, again, another way that these capitalists are trying to just undercut things because they're desperate. This is their interest. they got to maximize profit, maximize profit. They are just capital personified. Whether they're good or bad people doesn't matter. Whether they're friendly or mean neighbors doesn't matter. Whether they're giving so much to charity, none of that matters. They're capital personified. They're compelled to do things. This is what they do. So it says, the adulteration of bread and the formation of class of bakers that sells the bread below the full price date from the beginning of the 18th century from time when corporate character of that trade was lost and the capitalist in the form of the miller or flour factor rises behind the nominal master baker. Thus was laid the foundation of capitalist production in this trade of unlimited extension of the working day and night labor, although the latter, only since 1824, gained a serious footing. So that's kind of talking about, you know, you can't work as an artisan. I mean, again, this is why you're capital personified. You can't just do your old small business model. You're going to get eaten up by the big guys. Mm -hmm. You have to keep up or you're going to, you know, maybe you get a nice payoff, but you're going to get chewed up and thrown in the working class. You know, I mean, the, the, you're going to fall. So you have to be on top or you're behind. You're climbing a mountain, and that mountain is made of the climbers. So every time someone climbs to the top, the mountain's taller, and someone else is climbing on top of them. And you're climbing up and climbing up and climbing up, and then it's just a big mountain of dead bodies. That's why it's not the fact that there's so much government regulation that, and we, that we don't see innovation in the workplace. Why isn't there? Why are there only three cell phone companies? There should be able to. Someone else should be able to go out and start one. And it's all this regulation and no, it's because there's three big ones, and you have no way to possibly compete with those resources. Period. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't exist. It's not. It's a lie that you're telling yourself. I'm just gonna snap my fingers. I'm gonna have all the cell phone towers there. Yeah. And oh, I don't I don't wanna exploit people because I'm the good guy, so I'm just gonna make all the cell phones by myself by hand and handle all the customer it, service calls. It, it's definitely going to us. It's the literally a fant like it, I cannot and I do, I understand it because I li I, I lived in that world for a while. It's fun. Yeah. Uh but but to convince yourself otherwise, to convince yourself that it's not just this if you look around the world and go, No, no, there's level playing field and everyone can do no. No, there's not, and it's pretty obvious, and we're just, again, Marx is just hacking away at the underpinnings well, and, and, of the whole thing. And Marx is saying, again, you know, I mean, here, because he's playing within the rules. Yeah. Even if you do that, let's imagine that you're one of the Cinderella stories. You did start broke. Not like all these guys that just, you know, happen to get a small million-dollar uh, loan from Dad. Yeah. You know, just happen to start their business Came up with his apartheid emeralds in his pocket. Right, right, right. Um, you know, just happen to be able to take the risk of a business that would fail with no repercussions if it did fail. And, oh, my business succeeded. Well, I risked it all because they could land back in Daddy's mansion basement that other people can't do because they'd be dead on the street. You know, I mean, they, it's not even that. If you really started from scratch and built your whole company up, you're not going to be able to do all that work as one person. By the time it's making money, you're exploiting people. Uh -huh. So the system is just reproducing itself over and over and over. So down here he says, After what's just been said, it'll be understood the report of the commission classes journeyman bakers among the short-lived laborers who, having good luck by escaping the normal decimation of children, rarely reach the age of 42. Nevertheless, the baking trade has always overwhelmed applicants. The sources supply of these labor powers to London or Scotland and Western agricultural districts of England and Germany. In the years 1856 to 1860, journeyman bakers in Ireland organized their own expense, great meetings to agitate against the night and Sunday work. The public, the Dublin meeting in the May, May 1860, took their part with the Irish warmth. And as a result of this movement, day labor alone was successfully established in Wexford, Kilkenny, 
Clomnall, Waterford, etc. And then he goes on to quote, in Limerick, which, you know, I'm of course Ireland, yep. where the grievances of the journeymen were demonstrated to be excessive, the movement has been defeated by the opposition of the master bakers, the Miller bakers being the greatest opponents. The example of Limerick led to retrogression by Enos and Tipperary in Cork, all these Irish towns, where the strongest possible demonstration of feeling took place. The masters, by exercising their power, turning out men of employment, have defeated the movement. In Dublin, the master bakers have offered the most determined opposition to the movement by discontouncing as much as possible the journeymen, promoting it, having succeeded in leading the men into acquiescence in Sunday work and night work, contrary to the convictions of the men. So they basically went, oh, we're just going to fire all you and replace you with scabs, and that'll defeat it. So now, now you're kind of seeing why why organized labor is is a big deal, and uh, why why some of these policies that are hacking at unions that are done bipartisanly in spite mm-hmm. of party reputations. Or or you can have a union and you can just go uh, full Reagan on them in the in the 80s and say screw yeah. your union, it's dissolved, you're all fired, go home. Because. Uh, Yay! Air traffic controllers. Yeah, you know, yeah. Uh-huh. Air traffic controllers. Uh, he goes down a little farther. He says, In the last week of June of 1863, all London Daily Papers were published a paragraph with a sensational headlining, Death from Simple Overwork. Okay. Hey! It, we're calling it what it is. Yeah, it dealt with the death of a milliner, uh, of a milliner, Mary Ann Walkley, who was 20 years old, mm. employed in a highly respectable dressmaking establishment, and she was a, exploited by a lady with the pleasant name of Elise. Oh, I love snarky marks. So... The old, often told story was once more recounted. The girls worked on average 16 and a half hours without a break. Without a break. <laughs> often 30 hours without a break. Whilst her failing labor power was revived by occasional supplies of sherry, port, and coffee. And sherry meaning, you know, wine. Uh-huh. Uh, uh-huh. It was now the height of the season. It was necessary to conjure up in the twinkling of an eye a gorgeous dress for the noble ladies bidden to the ball in honor of the newly imported Princess of Wales. Marianne Walkley had worked out of intermission for 26 and a half hours with 60 other girls, 30 in one room, that only afforded one-third of the cubic feet of air required for them. <laughs> My God. Can you... Okay. Imagine being in a room with 30 other people and there's only one-third of the right amount of yeah, air. It's it's bad. How do you even, like, get that many people in a... Like, I can't even. I cannot I even. Uh, he says, stifling holes were divided, partitions aboard, and this was the best millinery establishments in London. And she fell ill on Friday, died on Sunday, and without to the astonishment, Madame Elise, having previously completed her work in hand. The doctors, called in too late to the deathbed, duly bore the witness for the coroner that jury that night. Marion Walkley had died from long hours of work, an overcrowded workroom, and too small of a badly ventilated room. Then, in order to give the doctor a lesson in good manners, the coroner's jury thereupon brought in the verdict, the deceased has died of apoplexy, but there was a reason to fear that her death has been accelerated by overwork and overcrowding. So, basically, so you remember that thing earlier where I said that we don't call a spade a spade and we don't uh, you know, admit when we kill someone by working them to death? Yeah. yeah, it was happening in London in the 1860s, Oh, too. Big, big time. And, and again, this shows, you know, I mean, the jury stepped in and said, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. So these are the guys doing the regulations, mm-hmm. but they're clearly not on your side. No. <laughs> and they're going, whoa, uh, she, you know, she might have died of apoplexy, whatever. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, then he goes into day and night and the relay system. So he, this is talking about the, ca- uh, the constant capital, and he's basically laying out that every drop of labor in proportion to the uh, surplus labor is absorbed, and when they fail to do this, the mere existence causes the relative loss to the capitalist, and they lie and follow the useless advance of capital. It's saying the constant capital is losing its value as time goes on. 
Okay, pretty simple. Um, then he goes on to the steel manufacturers, and again, they're working the children the so they can work them at night. Yep. Uh, he says the boys do not suffer. <laughs> he talks about how the capitalists just express themselves like they don't even understand what these people are complaining about. He says the boys do not suffer from the heat. The temperature is probably from 86 to 90 degrees at the forges of the rolling mills. All right. And they're working from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. And the hours are from t- or the hours are from 12 to 12. It you know, seems perfectly normal. And I don't see anything wrong with it. Yeah, I don't see anything wrong with that. So, um, you know, there's a lot of other cases in there, but that language I, I just really wanted to highlight. Like they don't even no that that was a direct quote. They just didn't even understand. No, it's it's yeah. <laughs> um, and then he's going on to the extension of the working day uh, mm-hmm. from the 14th century to the 17th century. That Again, has some some uh, points into it. Uh, one of them, he says, is not the normal maintenance of labor power, which is determined the limits of the working day. It is the greatest possible daily expenditure of labor power, no matter how diseased, compulsory, or painful it may be, which is determined the limits of the laborer's period of repose. Capital cares nothing for the length of life of labor power. All that concerns it is simply solely the maximum of the labor power, and that can be rendered fluent from a working day. It attains this end by shortening the extent of the laborer's life. A greedy farmer snatches increased produce from the soil by robbing its fertility. And he's tying back to, I think you said earlier in England, how they just used guano to try to make things yep. grow more and forgot that it just sapped the soil. 100%. It was efficient at the time, and that's all we cared about. That's all they cared about. That you know, capitals have to be saved from themselves. Now he goes, if the value of the labor power includes the value of commodities necessary for the reproduction of the labor. This is tying back, this is what labor power's value is, you know. Mm-hmm. So he says, for keeping up the working class, if then it's unnatural extension of the working day, that capitalist necessarily strives and its unmeasured passion for self-expansion shortens the length of life of the individual laborer and therefore the duration of his labor power, the forces used up have to be replaced at a more rapid rate and the sum of the expense of the reproduction of the labor will be greater. Just as in a machine, part of its value reproduced every day is greater the more rapidly the machine is worn out, it would seem, therefore, that the interest of the capital itself points in the direction of a normal working day. And this this is what I was thinking about earlier with the slave. He says the slave's owner buys his labor as he buys his horse. If he loses his slave, he loses capital that can only be restored by new outlay in the slave market. But the nice grounds of Georgia, the swamps of Mississippi, may be fatally injurious to the human constitution. But the waste of human life, which the cultivation of these districts necessitates, is not so great that it can't be repaired from the teeming preserves in Virginia and Kentucky. Mm. (laughs) So, you know, again, I mean, you're capital to them. And the slaves were even worse because they weren't an agreement in exchange for a small amount of time. You bought something. There was again. no, there was no agreement. Again, it, it broke the, and again, it broke the rules of the fun system. That's the bad, and capitalism's good because there's agreements and free trade, and we came in and as free people and yeah. with rights. And, and this is kind of a. He doesn't make this explicitly, but it's implied a lot through this chapter. But there's, there's another. I mean, Marx likes these contradictions, right? Uh, there's a Marx just contradiction. The slave is both the perfect analogy and understanding of what's actually happening in capital uh-huh. and a completely different phenomenon that treats them as constant capital that has the ability to be used as variable capital, capital and destroys the person more ruthlessly. Yep. And that's just, and again, that's all ignoring the humanity. That's just defining the system. Yep. But the humanity of that, both of those are grotesque and obviously the slavery is just mind-boggling. Also, yeah. Southern plantation owners, great capitalists. Uh, I mean, they, they got rid of that whole variable capital thing. They were crushing it. Yeah. 
Yeah. Cut that V out, man. We well, got a whole bunch of surplus. And and because of that, it was really more of an agrarian society. That's kind of one of the things that led. Um, I, I don't think a lot of people think about this when they think about uh, Civil War because we're not really taught it well. But there were four big events that uh, led up to the the Civil War. There was the Dred Scott case. There was John Brown's raid. Mm-hmm. Um, there was the Missouri Compromise. And then the other thing was the Panic of 1857. Not a depression. Not, not a we didn't have any of those before the depression. We only had panics. We yeah. only had panics. Uh, and the Panic of 1857 was something that affected the North heavily and didn't affect the South very much because it was agrarian. So because of that, that kind of that with the Dred Scott case and the Missouri Compromise kind of made the South feel like, oh yeah, we could we could secede. We got this system down right. Those mm-hmm. those assholes that that you know think. Oh, don't get it wrong. Their system was perfect if you ignore all the awful, awful you know inherent parts of it. Yeah, the whole thing. So he said, you know, the people up north are stupid, and then they're they're yeah. killing themselves by thinking black people are human. It would just <laughs> just be easier if we got rid of that dead weight. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're just, they're, they're, they're really, they're the ones that are stopping poverty, you I know. know. States' rights, though. States', states rights. rights. It's all yeah. about states' rights. Yeah. Which right did they lose again? With the, the, the one, what was that? that what, one how many right? Just, just that, that one. one. State just right. that one. Damn. Yeah. So Damn. then it goes down. It says, what experience shows the capital is generally in a constant excess of population, an excess in relation to the momentary requirements of surplus labor absorbing capital. Although this excess is made up of generations of human beings being stunted, short-lived, and swiftly replacing each other, or plucked, so to say, before maturity. Oh, my God. Oh, okay. This is, this is getting... Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, and then... He goes down a little bit more, and he says, In spite of fresh air and the principle of natural selection that works so powerfully amongst them and only permits the survival of the strongest are already beginning to die off, capital that has such good reasons for denying the sufferings of legions of workers that surround it is in practice moved as much as little by the sight of the coming degradation and final depopulation of the human race as by the probable fall of Earth into the sun in every stock-jobbing, swindle and everyone knows that sometime or another the crash must come but everyone hopes that it may fall on the head of his neighbor or that he himself has caught the shower of gold and placed it in safety boy when have we heard that before (laughs) so you know the capitalists know they know they're killing shit off they know this is gonna they know the system is bad right they know not only within it it's boom or bust. Like, it yeah. booms, explodes, booms, explodes, booms, explodes. But eventually the whole thing's going to crumble, right? Yeah. But they're only going to care when they start seeing that light approaching them. Yep. When they feel secure, when they feel safe, uh, maybe it'll happen to my grandkids. Yep. Uh, maybe it'll only happen to the poor. And that's that's really a big part of why, you know, say white supremacy is tied so far into capitalism. Because all of a sudden, you know, you have these people and, and this management class. They're 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 exploited, yeah. and they know that they're the next proletariat if the proletariat dies mm-hmm. off. Yep, we yep. But they're sitting pretty. Their life's pretty easy. They're sipping mimosas. All things considered, if, if Hillary would have won, they'd be having oh their brunch. Oh my god! Yeah. And that is why, if for whatever reason, the extent let of the poor people die, yeah. if the extent of your political involvement is voting, <laughs> you are not changing the system. I don't care who you voted for. Yeah. I don't care if you are not threatening them. In some meaningful way, if you are not making the the establishment worried, vote for whoever you want. It's pretty obvious at this point that doesn't matter. I would rather you protest than vote. Do something. Mm-hmm. 
but there's also kind of an inherent there's a, a lethargy among people who are not you know who are in the working class. Oh, and yeah. That lethargy is the same notion. You know, maybe it won't fall on me. No. Nope. Maybe it'll go down the line. You know, and the people Immig- that know that have no choice. Yeah, the people these immigrant families that are watching their children get ripped away. They go. Yeah. I can't wait. Yeah. I need to do this now. Exactly. And that's, again, that's the and kicking, that's the punching down is, again, the management class is like, okay, well, I'm going to exploit the pro. I have these people as the below me. And so what do you do when you hit the bottom? Find a lower bottom. Hey! So now, again, instead of getting together and realizing who the real problem is, we're blaming the most exploitable and the most vulnerable parts yeah, of our society. And you're, and you're punching down because you don't, you know, it, hey, that won't fall on my head. That'll fall on my neighbor's head. As long as I make sure my neighbor's under there. So the capitals go, hey, they're trying to get you under this weight that's falling down with them. And instead of letting you go, okay, well, then me and them are going to stop this weight and we're going to rip you from power. You're going, oh, yeah, they're right. And kicking them back down there. And that's how punching down works. Yeah. You know, and you're making it consciously, subconsciously. You may be denying it, you know, to internalize it. You may be not realizing it. But that's how punching down works. And it's something that, that, you know, to a certain extent we all do. And because there's some human nature involved mm-hmm. to it, because you're bound to survive, but we have to minimize. I mean, it's it's a really big deal to do that. So, um, then we're gonna say, when beginning to grow, it secures the right of absorbing a quantum sufficient or sufficient quality of surplus labor, not merely by the force of economic relations, but by the help of the state. Appear very modest when put face to face to the concessions that growling and struggling it has to make in its adult condition. So it's saying capitalist wasn't always this big boogeyman monster, but it was always designed to be. Like the very nature of it is exploiting other people. The very nature of it is having the force of private property and putting you at your, you know, at your value. And we saw capitalists kind of got a little out of control and left to their own means. So the state had to come down on them because the state goes, well, I'm running all of the people. If they Mm -hmm. revolt and and there's a huge revolution, I'm going to die too. But the more powerful the capitalist are, the less they have to worry about that, the more they can just get chummy with the state and say, hey, you know, I mean, we're we're the things keeping things in order. We're the things uh-huh. making your state churn. And the state has to listen to them. So all of a sudden, the state becomes this arm of neutrality that was really a ruling upon the poor, but a tool for everyone. It becomes simply a tool for the ruling class. At what point does the state just become constant capital? Just incorporate, all right, got to spend this much it's, on the machine, this much on this, this much on the state to make sure that it does what we need it I to. I mean, the United States, I would say, was there from the beginning, That's, considering uh, the, the, like, three-fifths compromise. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, um, what's it, uh, eminent domain? I mean, lobbying has basically turned. Yeah. I mean, you're buying... Legislators' labor power at this point. Why not just call it what it is? Oh, lobbying's really nasty because it is. You could trace the money and see who's being bought by who. But it sounds like weirdly small sums of money for people this rich. Like you know, you killed off all these people for a hundred thousand dollars. But the really nasty thing about lobbying is the way it works. Is all these lobbyists, they're former politicians or former generals. They know how the game goes, and they're getting paid all this money to funnel certain politicians. And they come over to these other politicians. They're worried about voting no, and they say, hey. We know what your voter base expects. You vote no on this, or you don't include this writer, and we're going to put a bunch of negative ads out there, and you're going to lose your seat with your little $100,000 bonuses and fees. And and so all of a sudden, not just the one thing they're paying you for is threatened, Mm. but the collective lobbying that you ran for office for that's making you super rich is being threatened. By, by this lobbyist over here with these negative ads and this, this nasty stuff to stab you in the back, and you go, oh, shit, and then you vote for it to the point where these, these you know, I mean, these 
politicians are bad enough on their own. They put their own terrible rioters into their own interests. But at this point, they're not even paying attention. Yeah. They don't. There's no way they can read and comprehend and remember and, and, and investigate all of the lines of these laws. There's so many laws. There they're are not. so many pages going out now. They're not. They're, it's just the lobbyists are throwing shit in there and threatening them, and they're just signing off on it based on what certain lobbyists said will play I, or not play. I literally work. I mean, I not. It's Missouri. It doesn't matter. But I worked in the, the Senate. I, I can tell you half of those bills are not read. I can tell you that half of them are done by college kids like me that are sitting there in a committee meeting and the only thing that the senators are going to hear about it is what we told them or what the lobbyists told them. And more often than that's what the lobbyists told them because they're the ones that paid to fill our fridges. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, you know, that, that's how it is. So lobbyists are, are absolutely, the, you know, part of the problem. But remember, they're, they're a reaction to this. I mean, mm-hmm. there's no corporate lobbyists with no corporations. There's hey. no corporations with no capitalism. So, roots, people. Get We're root. getting to roots. Yes. Uh, then he goes down, reasonable, ages, reasonable wages were therefore fixed by law as well in the limits of working day. The latter point is the only one that here interests us, is repeatedly in the statute of 1496. The working day for all artificers, uh, field laborers in March, December, ought to be according to the statute. Remember, this was 1496, so yeah. capitalism hadn't taken off yet. This was the crowd no. was doing a lot of stuff. He said, to last from 5 in the morning to between 7 and 8 in the evening. <laughs> But the mealtime consists of an hour for breakfast, hour and a half for dinner, and a half an hour for a noon meat. I guess it wasn't called Second lunch, lunch yet. Yeah. Second breakfast. Second breakfast. Exactly twice as much as under the factory now in force. Wow. So, wow. you know, capitalism was, was pretty brutal from the beginning, but the state wasn't on their side. And the, the kings that didn't exactly give a shit about the poor were like, no. yeah, no, I mean, these are the rules. And so you can see, you know, this is before that 1850 act. Yeah. Right. It was stricter rules before the 1850 Act, but they had been dissolved and had to be brought back through a lot of fighting way later on because the capitalists hadn't gained all the power yet. And when they gain all the power, the state goes from something that's neutral or bad in a different way, but can serve the people against the capitalists, to simply a tool of the capitalist, with some measure of them making sure they don't go overboard collectively. And again, you see these things. I mean, people think, again, the the linear progression of time, things get incrementally better, we don't take steps backward, but... It, the I, labor laws in England got worse for 400 years. <laughs> and, and more relevant to now. Yeah. Look at look at the economy, look at look at look at the the, the working class and everything pre-2007, post-2007. The economy has, we have been told, recovered. Things are back to normal. We're we're better than ever. Life is great. Yet suddenly wages are still depressed for almost the entire population than they were before. Savings doesn't exist. Credit debt is way back ahead. So again, who is better off now than they were back then? It, it, it's a very small, exactly, capitalist are. The working class took a step back. We accepted lower wages. We accepted worse working conditions. We accepted all of this because we were put in a crisis of their creation. Mm-hmm. And now that and, and our standards basically we had such high our standards were lower to the point that we took whatever we could get, and now that's been so they managed to lower the bar. Well, and you got to remember too, we spent the last thirty years politically trying to champion small businesses, small business, small business, small businesses are still capitalists, and yeah, corporations are bad. I mean, they're sitting there shimmy in the government. There's weapons corporations making wars out of their ass, you know, all day long to the point where we think that that these other countries are run by these demonic dictators and people listen to them and it, it's 
the most idealistic thing I've ever heard. Like, how does this dictator work without support? And just, yeah. is this brutal? You know, you have to completely convince people. And for that, the system can't be a brazen, violent dictatorship. It has to be something that masks that pretty well. Like, say, capitalism. Uh, <laughs> you know, so, I mean, corporations are bad. But these small businesses, you know, these are the most reactionary voters out there. These are the people out there voting straight down Republican all the time. These are the people paying their workers minimum wage. Some of the worst worker treatment is in uh, franchises. And it's, you get these, these corporations' names and stuff out there, but then you get these small business owners that have to make the profit off the corporation, yep. and they dig into their workers to do it. And, they ha and because they are so, no, most of the time, they're so... A, a major, a Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, these kind of people are so, those major corporations are so far removed from being proletariat, from being a member of the working class, that they couldn't even fathom what that would be like. There is no, there is no amount of mismanagement they could pull off at this point that would reasonably take them to that level. A small business owner, absolutely, almost all, from in almost most circumstances, came from that background, understands that background, and will do every... And once they've gotten out of it and are at a point where they will do everything... In, it's, again, you're talking predator-prey at this point. They're going to pull that ladder up so fast, do everything humanly possible to make sure they don't end yeah. up back on the back they're, end of working class. They're very aware that they're exploiting people and they're actively doing it. And they have to. And they and they, they recognize it most... They yeah. recognize it most readily because very likely at some point they were the exploited and they just convinced themselves, I'm going to do that now. Well, and even if they don't, they... they they're treading such a thin line. They've got to see the line. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, and so he says, as soon as the working class, stunned at first by the noise of turmoil of the new system of production, recovered in some measure his senses, its resistance began. And first, the native land of ma machinism, England, for 30 years, however, the concessions conquered by the work people were purely nominal. Parliament had passed five labor laws between 1802 and 1833, but was shrewd enough not to vote for a penny of their carrying out for the requisite officials. And the state was on their side. And I'm sorry, we, we actually did jump into Section 6, which is uh, the nominal working day, compulsory limitation of the labor factory. Um, so then he goes on, and again, this is a lot of labor law stuff. Yeah. So he goes on, lawmakers were far from wishing to trench the freedom of capital and exploit the adult labor power, or as they called it, the freedom of labor that they created and the special system in order to prevent the factory acts from having a consequence so outrageous. So they focused on the kids, you know. Mm -hmm. e maybe we shouldn't let them work if they're under nine, or maybe if they're under 13, or, or whatever. Okay. Oh, yeah. And, uh, of course, you know, the capitals just ignored all those acts. Uh -huh. they, they, you know, yeah, I mean, so... All of a sudden, the reformed parliament, he puts reformed in big quotes, mm -hmm. which said it's a delicate consideration for the manufactured, condemned children under 13 for years to come to 72 hours per work week in the factory hell. And on the other hand, the Emancipation Act, which also administered freedom drop by drop, forbade the planters from the outset to work any Negro slave more than 45 hours a week. Okay. As if any so of that was actually going to happen. So hold on a second. So they just managed to make slaveholders look more progressive than factory owners in. Oh yeah, that was his big point. Yeah, I mean he's in as, and again he goes drop by drop. You know mm -hmm. this is little reform, little reform, little reform. Um, you know hey you can have your health insurance if everybody's health insurance gets you know expensive and we only give Medicare to. 20 million people of the mass amounts of population that needs it. Don't worry about that whole word deductible. Um, you know, I mean, it, it's it's the trickle, you know. And yeah. That's The technocrats love the trickle. Oh, I love it. And, and again, we said, but capital was by no means soothed. They yeah. will never be happy. 
There is no amount of concession they will make or no amount of concession to them you can make that will stop it. It is infinite. It is it is all yeah. hungry. The new the new deal was because there was a huge amount of social uprising and that was to quell people. So it's like, "Oh, well, we'll make sure your bank account doesn't sputter out and, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, hey, we'll we'll give some medical care to the really old people." And, you know, I mean, it, it, it's all concessions, and it's concessions you force, and they're going to find a way to undercut it later. You know, again, branches grow back, kill the root. Kill the root! So it says, been seen that these minutiae, which the military uniformity regulate by the stroke of the clock of the times, limits pauses of the work were not all the products of parliamentary fa- fancy. They developed gradually out of the circumstances natural laws of the modern mode of production. Their formulation, official recognition, and proclamation by the state were the result of a long struggle of classes. People made these happen, and they just tried to cut all the corners they could. So eventually, he said, that, you know, they've, they've made the um, Factory Acts 1844 and 1847. So the manufacturer, however, did not allow this progress without compensating with retrogression. At the instigation of the House of Commons, reduced the minimum age for exploitable children from nine to eight in order to assure the additional Uh-oh. supply of factory children, which was due to capitalists, according to divine and human law. You have got to be kidding me. <laughs> These guys were bastards. The, it's just, it's just ridiculous. This is, yeah. Uh, he later on goes on to talk about reducing wages by ten percent. Um, and then thanks to a new free trade era, they reduced wages another eight and a third percent. And the working day was shortened to 11 hours. Uh, but they, of course, you know, drug all the break times and snippets mm-hmm. out of there. And so it was a reduction of wages. At least 25 percent took place. So the workers got poorer and poorer. And even with that, uh, it was talking. One of the factory inspectors said they would much prefer working 10 hours for less wages, but they had no choice. That so many were out of employment, so many spinners getting very low wages by not having worked as piercers and being unable to do better. That if they refused the work for a longer time, others would immediately get in their places. So it was a question of them agreeing to the work a longer time or being thrown out of employment altogether. Again, this is the whole idea of unionization and solidarity, because peeps got eat. And if you just think and Pete's got to eat, we're just going to undercut each other all day long. So, yeah. It's it's delightful, isn't it? Yeah, it, it, it is. So, um, you know, again, there's more factory inspectors. I'm going to go down a little bit here. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm going to, to talk about, let's see, that was the... The ten hours law. This is really just talking about how they're undercutting all the laws and, and again, it's this whole nasty, chapter, but there's not enough for the details. There's really not. and again, chapter ten is another is is again a switch. We go from this very Marx wrote in varying styles. He was very good at, at varying his story. So again, chapter eight and nine, even surgery seven, very very dry and they're they were analytical. They were very well done, but mathematical. Not a lot of not a lot of the snark, not a lot of the other stuff, just very straightforward. And then this is a, a, a good showing of his understanding of history. He said, okay, you know, we've, we've understood these foundations. Here are the, here is the arc, here is the story of how this has played out in the real world. So a lot of this is in the same way that he uses 18 different mathematical formulas to show, no, this really is how it works backwards and forwards. He's using these 45 different, you know, anecdotes and stories and tales from, from, from 
labor laws and, and how they've had an impact to show, look, this is how it happens every single time. You can change this rule, they'll do this. They'll change this law, they'll do that. Um, and he's just showing that it, it is it is the way it has gone and the way it has always gone. Yeah, and again, I mean, this is pretty clear, right? The law is not going to hold the capitalist within it. No. It's the power. Yes. The, the law is just the, the letter of power. And we can see this today. We've brought about racial issues how many times, right? Yeah. Okay, so you have a marijuana law, right? <laughs> Marijuana's illegal. Now... You have the lady famously on the internet for trying to call the cops on a kid for daring to sell water. Guess what her store sells? Pot to dogs. Pot pot shampoo to dogs. She's fine. But there's still people in her state serving 30-year sentences for having dime bags in their pocket. Guess what color their skin was? Uh, Because, you know, I mean, and and even then, I mean, this hits poor white people, too. It just hits people. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, even white supremacy isn't beneficial to white people unless you look at the true construct of white people, which is rich white people. Yes. Um, You know, all of these laws, they're just formalities for the way power plays out. Now, that matters. Laws still matter. But laws are not going to assert power. They're not going to destroy class imbalances. You have to destroy the classes and then allow the laws to be the practice of abolished class. As long as they're the practice of class, they're just the guidelines of, of power to, to play their game. Yup. So then we're going to go to the, the section seven, the struggle for the normal working day and the reaction of the factory on other countries. So now we're starting to branch out a little bit. We're going, okay, it's not all England. So he says, first, the passion of capital under an unlimited and reckless extension of the working day is first gratified in the industries earliest revolutionized by water power, steam, and machinery, and those first creations of the modern mode of production, cotton, wool, flask, and silk spinning, and weaving. The changes in the material mode of production and the corresponding changes in the social relations of the producers gave rise to the first extravagance beyond all bounds, and then in opposition to this called forth the control as part of the society which legally limits regulates and makes uniform the working day in its pauses. So, you know, first, everything's going to happen in England. It's going to push both directions and kind of congeal on a spot. And then a second, the history of the regulation of the working day in certain branches of production and the struggle still going on in others in regard to regulation proved conclusively that the isolated labor, the laborer is, quote-unquote, free vendor of his labor power, when the capitalist production has once attained a certain stage, succumbs without any power of resistance. Once they start controlling the state, no one's going to stop mm-hmm. them. The creation of a normal working day is therefore the product of a protracted civil war. Mao's going to like hearing mm. that. <laughs> More or less disassembled yeah. between the capitalist class and the working class. And the contest takes place in the arena of modern industry. It first breaks out in the home of the industry, England. Mm-hmm. So it's saying, you know, this is how it worked out. And it started in England. Then he's going to go back and he's going to talk about France and the United States. And he says, in the United States of North America, every independent movement of the workers was paralyzed so long as slavery disfigured part of the republic. Labor cannot emancipate itself in the white skin, where in the black skin it is branded. Now, my friends, that is vital. Yes. Um, Yes. So, again, we see an extent of this. You know, I mean, this prison system we're talking about has, not not only do we have the largest prison population out there, but it's loaded with slave labor. Yeah. Um, The 13th Amendment was really kind of an out. Hey, you can have slavery, but you got to follow these guidelines. Again, Uh that's what law is for. It doesn't stop the power. And go watch that, the documentary 13th. It does a way better job of explaining that. Yeah, it really does. Um, But 
you know, Marx thought, Mar- it, this was what, the 1860s, 1870s mm. when he wrote this? He didn't see that effect coming down the pipe. I mean, he saw uh. the future pretty well, but he didn't quite catch that one. Um, so, you know, to him, it's like, okay, well, now we can start liberating the, the white labor. That was that was our big roadblock. And obviously, you see that in America now. I mean, we're not going to have... We're not going to have our day against the capitalists no. until we because that know, is dismantle a tool. racism. Because yeah, that a tool. is a tool. That is a. It is. You have to have them. You have to have them looking somewhere else. And so until we can, and that's the obvious, prominent marginalized group, based on the history of this country. But I mean, you have obviously indigenous people that have been genocide. You have trans people. You have gay people. You have, I mean, anyone marginalized, sex workers, all that. Immigrants from anywhere, anyone yeah. not, and you know, not, any non-native. Yeah. yeah, I mean, anything like that. You you just let those things fester, and it's going to stop your liberation. Uh-huh. You know, solidarity is twofold. It's an empathy project, okay? Yep. And empathy means not sympathy, where you look down on something and <laughs> feel bad. It means you put yourself in that place because you understand it, okay? Yep. We we are to some extent, at least some extent, probably you know, a great extent, oppressed as workers. Okay, we deserve our liberation. We're not going to have our liberation and our revolution if we leave the people that are displaced in the same way to a greater extent and other ways on top of it behind. Nope. Okay, you can't have a white supremacist socialist revolution. <laughs> All these people that are like, oh, the, the, the feminists are out uh, there with their calling everything, you know, the, the, the rapes and the men's rights and are going apart and da, da, da. You know, those people are just trying to get you take all of your anti-capitalist fervor that's well-deserved and your realization there's an elite class out there and they want to funnel it at a marginalized group, say. Anything else. Jews, feminists, anything like that. And women, anything else. To derail it and to send it back in service of capital. And if you can't accept everyone in this movement, the movement is going to die. Mm -hmm. And again, when you talk about empathy, you, you, you can empathize with someone because you understand that situation, you can at least understand a portion of their situation. Yeah. And that's why I can never understand the racial component of that. Because me as a white person, I can't empathize with Jeff Bezos, a white person. Because literally there is nothing about our situation that is compatible. I can't, he can't understand a thing about what my life is like. And I can't understand a thing about what his life is like. But if I have an... <laughs> African-American, Latino, anything in a, in a similar working, in a similar class, in a similar day-to-day reality as me, I can absolutely empathize with that person. It you understand not... what it's like to not be able to afford stuff. You understand what it's like to work yourself to death. You understand what it's like to see your family suffering. You understand what it's like for your boss to be an idiot and you to have to smile and nod at that. You can empathize. And the fact that... You understand what it's like to look at politics and until you realize that we need a solidarity, organized, class-based revolution... As long as you leave your brain within the system, feel powerless. Yes, you know. I mean, and that's the game. That, this so this is what would make you powerful. Obviously, it's yeah. done a good job of making again all these people out there on the internet. Oh, it doesn't. It's more power. You know, we can't stop it. It doesn't matter. Yeah. That that's that's what the, that's what it wants it to believe. But again, look around. There are a lot more similarities based on if you had to pick an identifying character, class is the one. And anyone that tries to convince you it's any, it's not nationality. Again, I have more in common with a an African American Latino worker in. France than I do with Jeff Bezos in America. I, again, nothing. It's not. 
Yeah, it's international. It's not the nationality. It's not the color. It's not the race. Not the gender. It is class. And that's a big thing today. So the slavery went away, but obviously the level of empire in the United States had not <laughs> been seen at that time. No. And that's the slavery hasn't completely gone away. We just talked about the exactly. Obviously, the white supremacy is still there. But the big major factor right now is not slavery. It's war. Yes. And every time that we're supporting the troops and doing all this, and we got to, you know, oh, my God, my grandpa fought in the war, so I must be okay with, with killing the brown people. And, oh, uh, you know, these, these NGOs that happen to all be sponsored by the government, but they're not directly sponsored, so they're, they're independent. You know, there's one level of removal there. You know, they say that, that this guy's a, a bad dictator, and so I have to believe this. And, and, you know, we found out that all those lies about the Soviet Union run true, but and it's 30 years later, but I kind of heard them in my childhood, so I still got to think they're true. And they're super true about this guy, even though the exact same... Yeah, movie. they're super... Yeah, I mean, I don't know what happened in Libya, how it turned from the best, you know, life... <laughs> life. Uh, uh, I can't say expectancy, life, standard of living, yeah. you know, in Africa, by far to an open-air slave market that yeah. runs weapon gamuts and, and makes slave exchange money for ISIS. You know, how did that happen? Well, obviously because people believe Gaddafi was this dictator and stuff, so as long as you're spreading those lies, oh, you know, I'm against war, but North Korea is as bad as America says it is, even though most of the stuff that's come out has been proven to be a lie. Uh, yeah, demonstrably yeah. false. How much of it needs to be demonstrably false before well, you stop believing? And how it? many times these people have to lie to you about Iraq and Libya? I, that's the and, that's the fascinating part is how many how wrong mm-hmm. do you have to be to not get heard from again? Yeah, like how wrong do you have to like David Frum still has a job. He has a major voice in politics. Yeah, like never people reach. still listen to him. Like he met he, the main architect of the Iraq War, the yeah. main like cheerleader for it, still is employed, and like no one talks about. Like I yeah. can't. It doesn't. So, so, so if you Park think says that, labor yeah. cannot emancipate itself in a white skin or in a black skin, it is branded. I will say labor cannot emancipate itself on U.S. soil until on the world soil is emancipated. Yeah. There you go. And that's okay. that is the big one. You cannot say. Oh, well, we're going to have the socialist revolution here. And again, oh, we're not going to, you know, we have the means of automation. We're not going to, you know, we're going to divide up the wealth. Oh, well, how are we going to support dividing up the wealth? Well, you know, we'll take it from the, you know, we'll, we'll get, we'll still have the cheap labor from, no, 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 no. Yeah, I was about to say, do not think. And that's where I get it. And what's amazing is if we paid out the reparations around the world, you would still work less. You would yes. work better. And and one thing we didn't get into enough in chapter one is Mark talk, Marx talked about uh, alienation of labor. You start selling your labor to somebody else, and it's like, well, what the? Hey, they they bailed it in office space, right? Yeah. Well, if I push it through a few more, you know, points through, there's a quarter of a stock point for in a tech, and what do I see, right? It's it's everybody's like, what the hell is that? You're alienated from your, your labor. labor. But if you go, hey. This is my contribution to the planet. I'm bringing up the standard of living, and I'm making sure the global South doesn't die of, of this disease. I, you know, making sure there's there's uh, equipment for food to be in this country. That way, they can feed themselves, and that way, they can break independence. They don't have the uh, dependency that Thomas Sankara spoke against uh, when you just you know dole out food to other countries and, and you don't dole, dole out the tools. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, you have that fulfillment. I'm part of this project. Even with the reparations, let alone what you can see in the country around you, you know, if you go to like a more Cuban lifestyle where your uh, community meals, um, you know, I mean, they they worked on the the gardening and the greenhouses and the the stack gardening. Yeah, your I mean, vertical. Yeah, vertical gardening. You know, I mean, you start doing that, and it's a lot more fulfilling, and you're working less, and you're working probably honestly easier jobs, and you're still talking. 
30 hours a week, yeah. maybe, of, of hard yeah. work for abled people. But you have to support people who are disabled. Yeah. You have to support people who are in the, the global south getting their reparations. And you have to build a society around you. And yet it's going to be less work. It's going to be more fulfilling. You're going to like your work. I mean, people like work. Why do you think people have hobbies? Yes. Why do you think people volunteer for organizations? People like work. You just hate alienated work where you're being worked to the bone for someone who doesn't care about you and thinks you a cog in the machine. And uh, so, yeah, we will have that to pay, uh, those reparations <laughs> to pay. But uh, you're, you're probably going to like the paying reparations part yeah. more than your work now, let alone the other fulfilling normal work. Oh, uh, it's, it's again, it's very, but it's an important part to make because, again, that's a, when you talk about bringing it home to the modern, this is something you see, you, uh, th there is this just weird disconnect about what, you know, there, there are there are groups that kind of think that this is the road that they want to take, but aren't, you know, kind of just want to get all the, the roses and don't want to deal with what the actual reality is. Yeah. And even when the actual reality is so much damn better, it's not even, it's, well, it's, and they I just mean, won't even consider it. Again, there's, you know, there's people that oppose as, as people on the right side and they'll send you swinging back the other way. And that can be very explicitly fascist or it can be even opposed to socialists. There are people who are incredibly well-intended and educated and smart and just not quite connecting that dot. There are people who are incredibly well-intended and just not educated. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's all of our jobs to educate each other, pull each other that way, and then do the work, and then understand what it's going to be like after that work, how good that's going to be, and how much even in that good, that's not some, you know, there, there was a long-time joke, a fully automated luxury space gay communism that they put on Twitter. It's not going to be that. And oh. it's not just the space oh. of the game that's going to be cut off. Damn. Oh. <laughs> Um, now, moving on in, in Capital, he says, The first fruit of Civil War was the eight hours agitation that ran with the seven-leagued boots of the locomotive from the Atlantic to the Pacific. From New England to California, the General Congress of Labor in Baltimore declared, The first and the great necessity of the present to free the labor of its country from capitalistic slavery is the passing of a law in which eight hours shall be the normal working day in all states in the American Union. We are resolved to put forth all our strength until this glorious result is attained. <laughs> And they did put forth a lot of strength. That's and not necessarily did. detailed here like he did with England. But, no, you know. but no, uh, yeah, it, yeah. <laughs> they did it. <laughs> yeah. And so he rounds out this chapter. He says, the contract by which he sold the capitalist his labor proved, so to say, in black and white, that he deposed of himself freely. The bargain concluded it is, and this is talking about your capitalist labor power exchange again. Mm -hmm. The bargain concluded it is discovered that he was no free agent, that the time for which he is free to sell his labor power is the time for which he is forced to sell it that in fact the vampire will not lose its hold on him so long as there is a muscle, a nerve, a drop of blood to be exploited. For the protection against the serpent of their agonies, the laborers must put their heads together and as a class compel the passing of a law, an all-powerful social barrier that should prevent the very workers from selling by voluntary contract with capital themselves and their families into slavery and death. In place of the pompous catalog of the inalienable rights of man, comes the modest Magna Carta. Mind you, this is a modest Magna Carta. This is a tiny little bit of reform. Mm -hmm. not, not, this is not the revolution he's talking about quite yet. No. It's a tiny little bit of reform. Of a legally limited working day, which shall make clear when the time for which the worker sells is ended is when his own begins. Ladies and gentlemen, that was, uh, <laughs> that was a, a fun romp through what I thought was going to be the, the quick chapter, and it's not. So just try. It's a long book, people, okay? You're getting through it. Deal with it. We'll have four quick chapters after this, and then chapter 15 will make that one look like a, 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 a short film. <laughs> God. 
strap so strap in for the the eight hour long uh, dissection of fifteen. God dang. All right. Well, if you if you've made it this far, thank you very much. Uh, any 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 closing thoughts on that one, David? Um. Yeah. I mean, that's a good chapter. That's and and Marx will stay this robust. Uh, I don't know if everything's gonna be that that like eye-popping like it was because we just changed that gear mm-hmm. um, and things will kind of stick in that gear and, and become a little more defined but there are three big chapters in Das Kapital Volume 1 there's 10, 15, 25 I alluded to it earlier uh, that's the first of the big three the other ones around it matter and they make them go but uh, that's that's the kind of hearty stuff you get in the big chapters and obviously you see you know we, we put in uh, what some people would call editorialism but <laughs> Was us uh, was us yeah. just tying to the modern? Trying. And, 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 and you could see how much content was easy to tie in there, even though that was a very monotonous chapter that got really specific to English laws. Yeah. And that's the thing. This book is not... It, the, the concepts are not outdated. They're not... They're not wrong they're not proven wrong there's not some there's not some context that we've actually we, predicted the future incredibly, uh, well. <laughs> incredibly well and there's not i i'm sorry if you've read uh, uh, you know wealth of nations or anything like that Oof. yeah good yeah i pity you it's uh-huh. not fun in any meaningful way but it's also not you read these things and it, it's not none of this ties together as well again the, the the concept that this is not applicable now that this is just theory that this is not not directly kind of the 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 model for what we need to be looking at and figuring out the right way to apply it is you're you're, you're kind of out of your mind if you can't see it at this point oh yeah i mean you're looking at conditions of factories and laws in england and the mid-19th century and while in your hand you're hearing nine-year-old children working with toxic fumes and 16-hour days and you're going oh yeah that was a long time ago it's nothing like that day Every little snippet you're still immediately able to relate to. Oh yeah, that's the kind of shit that happens to me at work. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's it's and it, amazing how pressing it is. And if you can't see the okay, so back then, you know, I'm you know anyone that's listening now, I'm like, well, how are you bitching about an eight-hour workday? You know, what's, nothing's that bad anymore, and we should just be thankful. And yeah, again, you the same. Douchebag I was just interpreting was there in 1860 going, it's only 12 hours and they're only inhaling noxious fumes for eight of it and they get fed at least. It's not that bad. The concept, this if this shows anything, it shows that there is the capacity for progress if the working class gets together and decides that they're going to be a, a, a coherent unit. If there's anything this is teaching us is that there is a capacity for changing things, but it isn't going to happen at the goodwill of Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and it sure as shit ain't gonna happen at the goodwill of politicians of their own accord. It's not gonna happen because some capitalist magically invents the cure to global warming because if they cared about global warming they'd start losing profits. You know, there's a reason you have one party that in in this it's there's more than two parties but the, the you know, because of propaganda, we have two socially accepted parties. Uh-huh. And we have one of these socially accepted parties or supposed left-right sides that just denies global warming exists. And the other one, all of its solutions are really expensive and unproductive and make one dude that's closely tied to the party a bunch of profit. Weird. <laughs> that's, oh, how that, how strange that that happens. Weird. Uh, yeah. So, you know, I mean, and, and that's one problem. There's, there's a horde of other problems. If you think life is good... 50% of the country is in poverty. Yeah. You know, I mean, we have kids separated from their parents, and when they're not, they're being locked in cages as families and oftentimes forced into slave labor. Yeah. You know, I mean, this this is the stuff that's happening now. Um, and I don't think most people that, that would finally get around to reading Marx are going to be sitting there on their 
cushy couches going, man, all, you know, all these workers are fired today, suck, and why the hell am I listening to this? You know, most people are going to hear this, and, and the stuff we're driving home, they're kind of getting. You know, we're just That's driving the hope. home for posterity. That's the hope. So, you know, I mean, this this should tie back. You should say, hey, life, you know, life maybe isn't that good. And, and the worst part is, is all these arguments you've heard. You've heard from politicians and TV pundits. You could, it's, it's like a, fo- a word formula, like a Mad Lib that's not meant to be funny. They just plug in the number of hours and the the age of people and the the you know uh, the industry the, it's applicable the industry to industry it's applicable to you know maybe the the snide uh, trendy insult for like you know a basement dwelling libtards or or you know uh, cultural Marxists or whatever they want to throw in oh, there God, you know I mean they, they they just throw in those terms and they have these these sentences plotted out they're saying the same things but different parameters it's the same thing so yeah. But so that's that, all I've got. So that was it. So that was that's nine. It. That was that was chapter nine and ten. Yeah, uh, we're gonna take a little easier. We're gonna get back into to, to um, functionality stuff, like you know how this this works. What are we're gonna our get rates of this and rates of that, and we're gonna we're gonna be reestablishing for chapter fifteen. Yeah, for a we got to start. We 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 did so. all the prep work to get to the big explosion there these last chapters, and and now we gotta we we we've gone down the roller coaster hill, and now we're gonna get on that chunk part that takes you back up again, and that's a slower, more predictable chunk. Yeah. So a lot less explosions. Yeah, a little time. easier to digest and shorter, shorter recordings in the near future. So <laughs> thank you for, for swamping through this with me, Nathan. And trust yes. me, this this is part of the it gets better. And as you notice, this is much better than the early. Yes. Uh, it'll, oh, it'll yeah. keep getting better. Well, better is an operative term. I still want to go murder somebody, but it's less <laughs> marks because he was writing poorly. And now it's just the Monopoly man. Yeah. And, and Elon Musk. Yeah. <laughs>